and good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Remember how I told you years ago that things would get weirder and weirder and weirder? Well, as has been asked many, many times, in the last four years, uh, have we reached the bottom yet? Well, I would like to rephrase that. Have we reached the the, the, the uh, breakpoint in the script where things dramatically change? We're going to find out. We're going to try to look ahead into the future tonight based on good history, good history uh, teachings, I should say, and uh, some very lively, and I'm going to tell you right now, warn you, very far out conversations. Because if you think the internet is full of theories and conspiracies and wild ideas, uh, you ain't heard nothing yet. I haven't told you my theory. And anyway, anyway, that's just kind of a tease. Before we get into tonight's show, I, I want to do a couple things here. Uh, a couple of very sad things happened today. Uh, Larry King, iconic TV and radio interviewer and host on CNN of Larry King Live for a quarter of a century, 25 years, uh, died early this morning. Now, uh, the other, the other uh, legend that I want to m- mention briefly is Hank Aaron. Uh, I watched Hank Aaron growing up, you know, watching his various baseball triumphs, starting living in Maryland where racial segregation was very obvious. I've told the story a couple of times of what happened to my parents and our restaurants and bed and breakfasts and all that because the town fathers didn't like that we served those people. <clears throat> anyway, uh, Hank Aaron was was brilliant. He was congenial. He was incredibly talented, and he is in the history books forever. So, Hank Aaron, uh, rest in peace. Let's go back to Larry King. The Larry King uh, story is really intriguing because I knew Larry, and I knew him off and on for many, many years. It started out, you know, decades ago when I was in California, and I was totally bored one night, and I actually turned on. I was staying with some friends, and they'd all gone to bed. And there was nothing on TV, so I turned on the radio. And on the Mutual Radio Network was this guy named Larry King. So I listened, and he he was very interesting. He had really intriguing, really, really kind of cool people. And again, in a kind of a foreshadowing of, you know, where we are tonight, it was like he was doing a modern version kind of of one of my favorite all-time radio shows, Long John Neville. After which, of course, this show was very, very loosely um, patterned. So I called in. When he asked for calls, I called in because there was some guest. It was some science thing. And uh, bizarrely enough, I was able to get through. By the way, there's, there's, there's a kind of a trick. or There was a trick back in those days to getting through, which um, I'm trying to remember what it was. Anyway, there was a way to get through. So I was able to get through. And I was persistent enough that he picked up the phone, and there I was. And so I started talking with Larry about the guest and with the guest. And at the end of that, Larry was apparently very impressed. He said, we ought to have you back as some kind of a science advisor. (laughs) So fast forward the film, 
years later when he was at CNN um, and broadcasting from Crystal City, which is that old glass complex across the Potomac River from uh, uh, metropolitan Washington, D.C., I would go over many nights and I would just sit in the studio when, when, he, when he did the program. And so, you know, we kind of got to know each other and um, I would, you know, make a few comments when we were in commercials, things that might be useful to ask and that kind of thing. Anyway, fast forward the film much further. And many, many years ago, back, I think it was 92, I finally got the invitation because I got the Angstrom medal to be on Larry King Live on CNN. And my most memorable memory, can there be a memorable memory? Yeah, of course there can. Was that the conversation was very difficult because remember, I was selling the concept of Sidonia and NASA cover-ups and imagery which they weren't showing us and a whole other interpretation. I mean, come on, that's pretty pretty hard to, to uh, go down easily. And so it wasn't until I got to the paperwork, because I had a little stack of, of research notes in front of me, official papers, and I started handing him documents. And if you look at the, uh, at the interview, you'll see that the whole conversation changed when he started reading these official documents, particularly the Brookings Report. So that's my very, very fond memory. Uh, many years later, one of my agents called him to try to see if they wanted to have me back on the show because, of course, I became quite controversial with that uh, appearance and many others. And I, I, I vividly remember that um, Larry said when he picked up the phone that he was on his cell because he was on Fifth Avenue going into, you know, Bergdorf Goodman's or someplace to buy something. And when the agent asked if he would like to have me back, he said, oh, Mr. Hoagland, uh, he said, I think we're going to wait on that. And uh, that's what they did. So there are times when you can be, even for Larry King Live, a little too controversial. Anyway, Larry, you've got an extraordinary new adventure in front of you. Moving on, um, tonight we're going to be doing something that uh, is a little different. We're going to try to prognosticate the future. We're going to try to, you know, use our crystal ball and kind of imagine what could be happening in the next few weeks and months uh, based on some historical comparisons and analogs and background. My guests tonight include, of course, Dr. Richard Spence, who's a professor well, he was a professor. He's now a professor emeritus at the University of Idaho. Um, you know him well. His bio is there on the guest page. We also have Georgia Lambert, who, of course, is our resident metaphysician. She has an extraordinarily interesting background. You all know it. You've seen it on the Times a million times. Uh, the most interesting thing is she worked for uh, Manley Hall at the, um, at the Research Institute there in L.A. for something like 10 years. So that gives her an exquisite background to talk about some things that I think will be relevant to tonight. And last but not least, uh, Dr. Joseph Bookman is with us, my friend Joe, who earned his Ph.D. in media from the University of Indiana and was a tenured professor of marketing. He is the current chair of the Libertarian Party of Utah, the past chair of the National Liberation Platform Committee, 
and served as moderator of the citizen hearing and was the seventh member of that committee to ask questions of witnesses when he replaced Darlene Hooley for the um, uh, events that were taking place, I think around the disclosure uh, events at the National Press Club for uh, Steve uh, Bassett and and I forget the other Steve. Ah, come on. Memory, memory, memory. Anyway, uh, without further ado, let me uh, open the mics. And boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the other side of midnight. Good evening, Good. Richard. Glad to be back on, Richard. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Okay. Um, this is difficult because I don't want to come off tonight as partisan, but there are some obvious historical events which have taken place in the last couple, three weeks, which really demand that we be truthful and honest and we point attention to real, easily verifiable facts. Uh, there was an insurrection at the Capitol a couple weeks ago. A whole mob stormed the Capitol, first time since 1814, and they broke in. And they were on a search and destroy mission, at least some of them, for the vice president. There were echoes over and over and over again, seen on all kinds of video. Hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. They were looking for Nancy Pelosi to do perhaps even worse things. They were looking for AOC. They were looking for, in other words, we really had a breakdown of the social order in the middle of the nation's capital by a mob. And it went on for hours and hours and hours. And as we're going to go through tonight, official response from the White House until Mike Pence literally was able to get the National Guard over to the Capitol was non-existent. Rick, has this really been the only time in 240 years compared to, let's say, 1814, when the Capitol has been subjected to this kind of uh, mob violence? Well, when you're talking about 1814, you're referring to the the British burning of, of Washington? Yes. Okay. Well, you know, I guess if you want to quibble there, it wasn't a mob. It was a, it was a fairly disciplined army that carried out a deliberate burning of you mean, you mean what was then called the presidential huh? you, you mean in eighteen fourteen. In eighteen fourteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh those were those were soldiers, reasonably well disciplined, uh operating in the the direct commands of uh of their superiors who were doing that with the approval of the government in London. Uh it was payback. Uh, one of the ways it was looked upon is that uh, American forces, remember the the British sack of Washington in 1814 was uh, came towards the end of the War of 1812, you know, which I've called the, the kind of America's real war of independence. But in that war, which had been going on for a while, American forces, militia forces had burned various towns in Canada. One of them was York, which I think was the capital of Upper Canada, but they had also burned a couple of other towns recently for that. So in, in particular, the British naval commander, I think Admiral or Vice Admiral Coburn, was bound and determined to burn the whole place. So if he had had his way, he would have burned everything, public buildings and private buildings. 
the, the more important, the key figure there was the British Army commander, General Sir Robert Ross. And Ross, what about it? Ross was rather reluctant to do it. Ross really wasn't into he wanted basically what he would have preferred in some ways is what Ale- no, Alexandria, Virginia, the town right across the river. Yeah. Um, they were also invaded by the British, but their city fathers paid a ransom. Right. He was look, don't burn anything. Don't trash the place. And we'll, and we'll pay you a ransom to go away. The British accepted that. I don't know whether uh, Colbert and others were in the mood to accept it in Washington, nor did the American government offer to ransom the capital. They took off to a nearby town in Maryland. But uh, but Ross actually sort of kept the destruction of buildings to very sort of deliberate burnings of the presidential mansion, the Capitol, uh, the Treasury, and I think a variety of – anything that was considered to be a public building. But most private buildings were, were left alone. So as sacks of cities go – it was, um, you know, these things go historically. It was pretty well behaved overall. And highly symbolic. And highly symbolic. Hmm. So messaging <laughs> appears to have been alive and well even back in 1814. Yeah. Hmm. Now, but, go ahead. Richard, I mean, if you want to look at attacks on the Capitol, it's been bombed three times. Uh, mm-hmm. In the last century, and there were five. Oh, please, please tell me. Wounded tell me. in a shooting. Just, Joseph, um, Joseph, please tell me. Tell me. Well, in 1915, uh, there was a bomb that went off. Okay. Uh, there was another bomb in 71 by the Weather Underground, which I remember when I was a kid. Another bomb in um, 1983. Nobody was hurt in any of the bombings, it just caused a lot of damage. I think there was a Daniel Webster painting they had to restore. I remember seeing a documentary about the restoration of that. But the biggie was the Puerto Ricans who in 1954 got in the gallery of the house and injured five members of Congress. That so is this true. was in some Didn't they also wild. try to assassinate Truman outside Blair House? Yep. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, it's not, not a unique uh, historical event in that sense. And, and then by some measures, uh, 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 wasn't as bad as those three bombings. I mean, I, I remember in, at the time, there's news. Well, 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 well. when you say it wasn't as bad, was gonna... hang on, Joseph, when you say not yeah. as bad, five people lost their lives in this event recently. Yeah, no bombs went off, I guess, by that measure. But they did well, find two. Off, they did find the building two. building wasn't bombed. They did find right. two it pipes. It wasn't burned. Uh, is there a delay, guys? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. They did find two pipe bombs placed outside the Democratic National Committee and the Republican National Committee just a few blocks from the Capitol. And they still haven't identified who put them there, and they did not go off, which was incredibly fortunate. Okay. But those weren't in the Capitol. They were not in the Capitol. But they're now looking that this appears not to have been the kind of excited you know, reaction of a mob to, you know, events of the moment. There appeared to be some serious planning around this. So were those bombs designed to be diversions so that in case there was a big official response to protect the Capitol and the Capitol Police were totally overwhelmed. And there's all kinds of major questions about, you know, what happened to the intelligence, which intelligence got delivered to whom, who was told not to do what, um, or 
Was there insider help? Well, that's was the idea. Ordering going on where that, members of Congress that's, showing people around in the days before. That's exactly. Anyway, this is all going to come out in the investigation. What I want to, what I want to, kind of elicit from you guys is: Has anything like this, in terms of magnitude, people killed and all that, since uh, 1814, has it ever happened since? And I don't think it has. Well, the members of the House were injured. I don't think any of them were were killed, okay, in, in the attack by the, by the the nationalists, who did I think bring automatic weapons in? Um, you know, I don't know. When I look at the recent events, I have to tell you, I don't look at that and see over the, the first impression I do not get is of a carefully planned operation being orchestrated by masterminds. Okay. Um, it still looks to me like. A lot of angry, uh, ill-advised people push their way into, by some means, not entirely clear, again, in circumstances, managed to get inside the Capitol. Um, the legislators dashed for safety, which probably was a good idea under the circumstances, and then largely milled around the place, the other, the assorted violence aside, picking up various items and uh, taking selfies of themselves. Mm. And... But five what people died. Five people died. Well, yes. And you know, see, it's un- unclear to me, Richard, that they they all died directly from the violence. Certainly, there yeah. was the shooting of at least um, one um, former military. Yeah, that that that, 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 that was that was one of the insurrectionists trying to break into yeah. the into the house chamber. Yeah, and the and other death. I would expect to be shot if I was doing that. The other, a couple of them, though, appeared to die from heart attacks. Three um, appeared to die from heart attacks. Yeah. All right. Okay. And one was an insurrectionist. She was killed as they were trying to break through that door because, you know, half the damn Congress was behind that door. So the, the agent who shot obviously was trying to protect, you know, the members of the, of the house and Senate because it was a joint session. They were all together. Anyway, the other thing is, um, well, they, they weren't though. They had split up into their two chambers to debate. They had been all together, but the Senate was over in the Senate. Remember, there's this police officer who's got the crew. yeah, uh, Mr. Goodman who led them. Away from the who with, you know, I watched so, that video and it's, it's it's eerie. It's just eerie to watch. Um, I, uh, but the, 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 you know, I did. I go debated. ahead. Congressman Curtis, when I ran in 2017, uh, the fellow who won was John Curtis. He's been to my home a couple of times. We uh, exchange emails from time to time, and and he actually was uh, responding to to an email I sent him that very night uh, about what it was like. And I said, you know, I hope your family wasn't overly concerned, and and I hope you felt safe. Um, And it's clear that he didn't. I mean, they, they, they certainly had every reason to be frightened. I was just Looking this up, the 1954 shooting, there were 30 rounds uh, shot, uh, five people injured who all survived. I think there was more gunfire than I don't think there was many bullets fired this time, but certainly five deaths by that metric. This was by far the worst in terms of the size of the bombs that went off in in the last century. There were at least three big bombings in that building. Um, I don't know that I'd want to work there with that kind of history of that workplace. Hmm. The thing I find so intriguing, and I I, I really just wanted to bring this up, obviously, after this major event, um, the the House, you know, uh, the Capitol Police installed magnetometers 
both in the House and the Senate. And apparently, a number of members do not want to go through them. And I find that really weird, not just on, on you know, political terms, but on, in, in terms of just natural safety. You've just been through a crisis where your, your life has been basically threatened, like I presume has never been threatened before. And it's because of leaky security. So if you go to any airport, you know, you have to go through a magnetometer. It's standard operating procedure. Why are there members of the House, I'm not sure about the Senate, but why are the members of the House refusing to simply go through the magnetometers to, so everyone can, can realize that there are no weapons, no guns on the, on the floor of the House? And again, I don't, I'm not sure about the Senate. Um, in the wake of a really cathartic and astonishing emergency, which has terrified an awful lot of members. The simple answer to that is because they don't believe that that keeps guns out, and and they don't. You can you can three D print a gun that doesn't set off a magnetometer. You can be attacked by somebody wielding a knife, and so they're the generous uh, answer to your question is they perceive the the safety being increased by the good guy with a gun, and they're the good guy. That's bizarre. <laughs> you know, can you imagine a shootout against whom? In the House chamber, because, of course, nobody is going to get in there ever again without permission, ever. Well, you'd think that would have happened after 1915, 1954, 1971, and 1983. Yeah, but historical memories are very, 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 you know. Well, and never make pronouncements about what will never happen again. Yeah. Because if you previously or what can happen, you know, the one thing that the event did – uh, is that it certainly showed that it was possible. Yeah, but it was only possible. It was possible. But it was only possible because, you know, the Capitol Police did not get the right intelligence. There were political decisions made about optics. Um, and when they finally were in the midst of the crisis, the president would not give them the National Guard. It literally went on for hours until Mike Pence was able to get the guard to, to uh, show up. That, of course. But it was possible. It happened. But it happened under an extraordinarily – I mean, given the number of incidents well, that, that Joseph has just talked about, it's not like it happens every third day. And historical memories are very, very – what I don't understand is given all the intelligence about restive populations – military, militias, proud boys, et cetera, et cetera, that there was not a better defense. And I'm really looking forward to a multi-pronged investigation to find out who dropped the ball when and why, and was this in fact part of an inside job. It sure seems that's a possibility because the historical event that came to my mind uh, at that time, and, and again here in this conversation, was Anwar, uh, Anwar Sadat, killed by his own guards, right? The people with the guns, nobody had a gun in Egypt. The only guys with guns were the guys who were supposed to have guns by whatever metric you want to use, and they turned and shot him. And then I was reading those concerns for the inauguration where they brought in all these National Guard troops, uh, awful lot of guys with a lot of guns, and they were revetting 
the National Guard to be sure there weren't people there who had extremist ties that might just use their gun to shoot the president. Hmm. Uh, I think these are concerns that some people who perceive themselves as very good guys from states with, uh, you know, gun laws that encourage uh, people to carry, uh, that say, hey, I, yeah, I'm serving the United States House. Uh, Congress shall make no law. And I've got a second amendment right. I'm carrying my gun out on the floor. That's just what I'm not defending them. I'm just saying you asked why would they think that? I think that's well, why. but I, why I would trust, you? Do you trust the TSA? I mean, you look at those guys with guns at airports. Do you think all those people are mentally stable? <laughs> I don't feel secure walking through the TSA. And I, by the way, I don't own a gun. I don't carry a gun. But I worry about those guys shooting me too, right? I, I don't think they're all perfectly stable people. Hmm. Well, that's the whole population. Obviously, it is. we and do not. Worse. We have a major percentage that are not stable. That's a that's a whole other show. Uh, Rick, in the last uh, five minutes here before the bottom of the hour, I, I want to ask you this. First of all, I'll give you a little background. I found in digging into this that according to House and Senate rules, uh, guns, loaded guns, are not permitted on either the House or the Senate floor. Guns by themselves are permitted in the offices of the Capitol, and they're permitted in the hallways. But, Joseph, you're going to love this. They only can be carried around empty. No live ammo. To be precise, they are permitted on the floor of the House. They're just not permitted to be in the hands of anybody other than the people that you call the police. I think that's a technicality. I, 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 yeah, it is. The, the distinction is whether you're employed as a police officer or you're employed as a member of the United States Congress. Mm-hmm. And one group can carry guns and the other group can't, but it's not like they're not permitted. They're permitted, but only in that one group of human beings, not the other. And certainly not the visitors. Well, look at what happened back in the 19... When was the Puerto Rican attack against Truman? And Oh. The, the Puerto Rican attack on the United States House was 54. 54. 54. Okay. Okay. Big question. We got about a minute. Maybe we'll pick this up on the other side. Um, if the mob had been successful, if they'd been able to assassinate various members... During the joint session counting of the ballots from the uh, Electoral College, what would have happened? Because I hear people saying casually, oh, it would have meant that Trump would still remain president. And I can't imagine that that's within the House or Senate rules and or within the Constitution that just because you have an insurrection and a mob and, and death – that it interrupts the legal process of the transition from one administration to another, or does it? Well, as far as I know, there's nothing in the Constitution that would cover that possibility. Yeah, that's what I was going to say as well, and, and I think you wouldn't survive that trying to stay president through that kind of yeah. crazy. Well, you'd have to do something very cute and clever, and so what we're going to do, and why did I lose my... Uh, oh, that's weird. I lost. Did I did I lose all my stuff? Ah, that's really bizarre. I seem to have lost everything I had stored in memory. By the so, way, it was nine, 
1950 that Truman was uh, subjected to a potential assassin, also by uh, Puerto Rican independence. Uh, right. Hmm. So 50 and then 54 was the attack on the house. Wow. It's not a particularly safe place to work. Uh, well, particularly at certain times uh, of the uh, year, I imagine. Anyway, I'm having a small computer problem here. So talk among yourselves while I try to solve it. Okay. <laughs> Some, I, t- I saved a whole bunch of very careful things, and they've all disappeared. I don't understand. I will not point fingers at anyone. Um, we're going to take a short break here, and then I will uh, be back with the, re- with, with, with the resumption of what we're talking about. Uh, I'm trying to chew gum and walk at the same time, which also is very difficult. So let us do this. And no, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. I do not like having these things happen on live radio. It's very, very disturbing. So, tell you what, <clears throat> we're going to take a break. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You're on the other side of midnight, and we shall return. I wrote a couple of weeks ago that says, am I being selfish? And I said, absolutely. But I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for my grandchildren and my grandchildren's children. I see the loss of rights and freedoms. I've lived long enough to know what's happened here, and I cannot stand back and simply comply. I'm going to resist those measures with everything that I have, uh, emotionally, psychologically, physically, legally, I cannot allow our rights and freedoms to be taken from us. We have to stand up for them. This is where I say that we have to become adults. We have to stand up for our rights and freedoms. We can't ask for them. We have to demand that they be honored and respected. To me, the masking is part of the strategy of totalitarian tiptoe. We just keep encroaching on you, and it's just a little bit worse than it was yesterday. And most people don't see it, but we see it. And that's why this program 
and the work that you guys are doing is so important. Hi, this is Ted Kuntz from Vaccine Choice Canada. I just want to reach out and express my gratitude to other side of the news for all that you guys are doing to empower humanity and bring us to a higher state of consciousness. Uh, the time that we shared together was a real pleasure, rich conversation, and I know that all of you are uh, higher conscious beings who are part of the solution. I just want to express my gratitude to Kintia, Timothy, and Aneta and your program, The Other Side of the News. You guys are great. everyone for this Saturday night, January 23rd, 2021. Things progress. So back to our guests, Dr. Joseph Bookman, Dr. Rick Spence, and Georgia Lambert. Uh, Where were we? Oh, we were talking about what would have happened if that mob had successfully killed several key senators, congressmen, whatever, on the literal moment when the votes from the Electoral College were being counted, what would have happened and who would have made the decision? Well, apparently they headed straight for the parliamentarian's office, and that took some knowledge of the Capitol beyond what you get on a typical tour because they were under the impression that the parliamentarian's office still had the boxes with the Electoral College votes in it but they were screwed away. So what if they had burned all the Electoral College ballots? Um, Would a President Trump have been able to successfully declare martial law and extend his term in office? That's what what I'm asking. That's what I'm asking, yes. Uh, I I think there would have been a crowd burning the White House down. Um, I might have gone up there and been a part of it. I I don't think the American people would tolerate it. Um, Something else would have happened. I'm not sure exactly what. Well, wait, when you say the American people wouldn't have tolerated it, this last election was almost like 50-50. And we know that 77% of Republicans now think, still think, have been brought to the realm of thinking that Biden is an illegal, illegitimate president because the election was stolen. Yeah, but you don't get to correct it with that level of violence. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying in that cultural meme, when there's all kinds of social media pushing that point of view, if the president had in fact declared martial law and aggressed- I think he would have lost his core supporters in that moment. I don't, I don't think a lot of them would have hung in there after that level of violence. The level of violence that involves kidnapping senators? Yeah, but I they think, already think, think that, that he was been, cheated out of the election. Yeah, but I, I don't think they would say that that's the way to, to correct it. I, I, I think he would have lost, I, and, they, and he did. January 6th, he lost a lot of that momentum among those crazy, uh, if you want to say those crazy people. And, and certainly, uh, there's a lot of voter fraud. There's voter fraud in every election. Um, yeah, but is it significant? But not enough to shift. Yeah, not See, enough that, to shift. That's the key thing. It's not that you don't have one speck of dust on your carpet. It's how many specks of dust before the carpet needs to be cleaned. Elections. I, I go ahead. I just don't think that declaring martial law would be survivable, even if half the country believed he had been cheated. Again, it's close to just barely half. But you just said it. I think once you do, and Once you declare martial law, you lose a lot of your core support, and the other side's going to win. That's what I think. I don't know that to be true. Well, again, let's let's kind of try to test this, Rick. Um, given that the Constitution is blatantly silent on all of this, and the House rules, and the you know the the uh, the two uh, uh, chambers together, all of that, in the vacuum that would have been created, if if Trump had literally declared martial law under the Sedition Act. Remember, there's a legal framework to do this. What happens to that constitutional at noon on the 20th? It, you know, the, the government changes hands. Well, I, let, let's go back a ways. Let's suppose that the, the people in the Capitol had gotten a hold of the Electoral College ballots and they'd all put them in a pile and they'd burned them, that they'd physically destroyed them. Right. That changes nothing. Okay. What, what is that? Let's put it this way. In, in your mind or in the mind of any reasonable person, does it mean that simply because the physical ballots of the Electoral College were, were, were destroyed that, that, that the college never voted? It's not like they can't vote again. It's not like those votes aren't recorded somewhere else. That was, you know, at the most, to me, you know, if you were really trying if, – if somebody was really trying to get their hands on the votes – and destroy them, and they thought that that was going to change the course of American political history. They were just nuts. Well, that's what they right. thought. The, that's exactly was, what they was, thought. At the most, that was that was a that was an act of desperation. That would have been a pure act of desperation because it wouldn't have changed anything. Well, no, it wouldn't. If, hang on, hang on. If they what? had succeeded in literally killing key members of the House and Senate, who would have been left to vote? Where would you have been left well, to vote? When would they yeah. have voted? And remember, it's only, what, three weeks until the, the transition formally takes place according to the Constitution. I'm just wondering in this exigency – I, Go ahead. I think I think we have an example of what would have happened that, that just came out in the news recently. Donald Trump, you know, Barr resigned. He had uh, Jeff Rosen in there. Trump tried to replace Rosen 
with Jeff Clark. Uh, yes. uh, and Jeff Clark said, hey, I'll, I'll support you. We'll stop this and we'll, we'll have some sort of recount. And Trump was threatened with mass resignations of everybody over justice. So let's say Trump says Sedition Act, things are crazy, I'm president until we figure it out. He'll be governing alone. A big chunk of his administration would have walked out and resigned. I am not sure of that at all. Well, because people have. I'm not sure of it either, but you had threats of mass resignations just when he was. But that was because of a blatant inside political act. This is a case where mm-hmm. on live television, you've got a mob burning. The, who knows where they would have gone? People kill. Let's assume the worst case scenario. Under that condition, if Trump had stepped in and, and you know, activated the Insurrection Act and declared martial law, how many Americans would have said, thank God, order is being restored and, and then just let them, quote, sort it out? How would it have been sorted out, again, under the Constitution, Rick? Well, there's no, there's no means to sort that out under the Constitution. I mean, the, the Constitution isn't – what would have happened is that if some if, – if they had managed to wipe out Congress entirely, put them all up against a wall and shoot right. them, then there would have been no one to vote. That would have kind of complicated things. But if you just killed certain people, then the rest of them would vote, supposed to do as well. And, you know, if you if there's if if someone, you know, if someone is killed in a car accident on the way to a vote in the the seat of Congress, that doesn't stop that doesn't stop things from going ahead. Those who would survive would constitute as long. I don't know. You could get the lawyers in later to say whether or not they had a quorum. But as long I would say as there was sufficient number to have a quorum to vote, they would have done so with or without anybody who who was killed. A lot of the whole thing, the action didn't do anything. Okay, right. at the most that would have been a symbolic action. You wouldn't buy it. I wouldn't buy it. Let's put it this way: if if Donald Trump had any real, I'll go in this way, had any real gumption as a would-be dictator, if that was his plan, I'm not saying it was. He, at the moment, his supposed followers took control of the Capitol. He would, as a commander of chief, walked in, took control of them. Order to do whatever he wanted. Is still as commander in chief of the armed forces, he could have ordered them to protect him. He could have just gone. You know, I mean, you're well beyond the 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 envelope of anything possible at that point. But you know, politics is nothing but the art of the possible. Right. And uh, and I also go back to the you know the history is not made by majorities or what majorities think or what majorities do because majorities generally do nothing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Most people just sit around and watch. It's made by active minorities. So is it possible, not necessarily Donald Trump, but uh, could you have someone who is a, of a more caesarean mindset? Uh, who, you mean who someone who is better at it? <laughs> yeah. Someone who was better at it, someone who was more determined, more ruthless. You've got to be able to do that. Could they have potentially have done it and gotten away with it? Well, I don't know. Maybe. But the other thing we got to keep in mind here is a lot of what we've been talking about are things that didn't happen. Well, but we came so incredibly. Well, we came incredibly close well, to we, them. We, we don't happening. know. We don't know how close we came. Okay. I, I mean, don't. None of those things close. We didn't come close. Okay. If this was a coup, it was the most impotent, wimpy yes. coup in the history of coups. Um, and if they killed all 536 members, counting the vice president of Congress. Um, and, and, and I don't know all of my state laws, but in a lot of states, governors can appoint 
temporary uh, members of Congress uh, pending a special election. So All you could right. still have enough people yeah. appointed by governors almost instantly to say, you're missing the obvious point. Once the mm-hmm. president declares martial law under that act, under the Insurrection Act, what happens uh, to the idea of Congress because no longer is Congress in control? It's the executive. I think it depends on the president. If President Trump did that, I think he would be alone without a lot. Here's how you get an effective coup: you have to have the military on your side. Yes, you had every member of the Joint Chiefs saying, "We're going to follow the Constitution, not the guy in the White House." And everybody said, "Hell yeah, we are." So except. Except, yeah. except we now know that during those several hours, I don't know if it was four or six or whatever, when, when you know, the Capitol is desperately calling the White House and saying, we need the National Guard and Trump's doing nothing. They tried the Pentagon and the Pentagon set up a committee and, and it turns out that the brother of Mike Flynn, remember Mike Flynn? Charles mm-hmm. Flynn was part of the decision making crowd that refused to allow the National Guard to go to the Capitol during the riot. We're talking about whether it would last for more than a few hours, um, and it would have lasted for more than a few hours. That's the point. Joseph is entirely right. The, the, The active minority that had the control in the situation, had there been an attempt at a presidential coup, which is what we would be talking about here, it all comes down as to whether or not a sufficient portion of the military would obey the president or not. They're the only ones who would count in that situation. And in the midst of a national crisis, why would they have not? He's the duly authorized commander in chief. But they don't take an oath to, to him. Right. They take, it, they take an oath to the Constitution. Against all dom- enemies domestic. Exactly. You're looking at a whole domestic revolution, and you're not going to well, do anything if he asked you to? Of course they would have. The, and then it would have been one of those things where, you know, it's like turning up the water on the, the hot water on the frog, the standard cliche. You do it incrementally. And it's, before you know it, you know, it's, it's, is it irretrievable? What what happens to the Constitution when the Insurrection Act is formally declared? Depends on the nature of the insurrection. I, I okay. Um, and maybe I just think the Ameri- you know, the idea that a a President Trump uh, defeated an election, which has been discussed, investigated, taken to court, whatever over the period of weeks, is somehow going to say, "Hey, Insurrection Act, I'm staying in office." And the United States military is going to back that up, I hope, is, is a very, very low probable scenario, like impossible. Um, Given the polls, I don't think you're – I think you're being much too sanguine. I think we really dodged an incredible bullet by the grace of you know, Mr. Goodman, if not a few others. I mean, what, something like 50 of the Capitol Police were injured. And two, one was killed, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, Mr. Sicknick, and the other Capitol policeman, apparently, because of what happened, he went home and he killed himself. Why mm. did he take secrets with him or, did, or was he murdered to keep secrets with him? Well, 
I'd say that if you want to, if there was a moment for a coup, if there was one, then it passed. All right. Again, it didn't happen. Uh, Trump didn't declare martial law. Order was restored. The military did not intervene. You know, all kinds of things could have happened. Hmm. Rick, let me ask you this, if, yeah. if you don't mind. No, by all means. Yeah. Go ahead. In the aftermath of, of what did happen. Yeah. Uh, and whatever investigations had come from it, how much, how much did that enhance the argument that D.C. now needs to be a state so that you could have a governor who could order the National Guard out rapidly? How much of this was caused because of the unique characteristic of D.C. not being a state? There's no governor that can order the National Guard in easily. Because they have no National Guard. Remember, all the Guard people we've seen now there, 25,000, give or take, they're from all these other states. Uh, the governor of Maryland uh, tried to send troops after he got desperate calls from the Capitol, and he couldn't get permission from the Pentagon to do it. I'm just asking if this is going to enhance the argument for D.C. to be granted state. It won't. It won't hurt the argument, you know. But D.C. has a mayor. It has a police force. Um, I don't think you'd necessarily have to have a governor and, and, a, and a national guard to be called in. I mean, there was, you know, there's an awful lot of, I mean, the, the one thing to me when I look at this is that I think it just caught uh, the established order flat footed. I mean, they just, you know, I'm not sure that the, uh, you know, the insurrectionists, whatever you want to call them, rioters, protesters, um, you know, rebel, yeah, whatever term, the, See, I, I, I'm sorry, the, Rick. The, the, I'm, the intruders. Let, okay. me, let me interrupt. I don't right. buy that argument because for weeks there had been all kinds of excitation to come to this rally on the 6th. Yeah. The president himself had tweeted uh, that it's going to be wild, you know, 15 exclamation points, et cetera, et cetera. So he was yeah. inviting his people to this rally just down the street. And then during the event, he says, pointing down Pennsylvania Avenue, go that away. I'm with you. Yeah, but he wasn't. Yeah, and he didn't go with them. Well, and that's, that's, no, that's, according that's, to that's, reports, that's when he was all. watching it on TV, he was expressing dismay that the people shown on TV were, quote, low-class people and couldn't possibly be his supporters. And you look at the, the images of the people who got into the chambers of the House and Senate, um, they weren't exactly dressed like who you would imagine would be a Trump supporter. You mean Mr. Buffalo uh, I, think Horns? Was, I think he might have been embarrassed by it. <laughs> there were certainly some reports that he expressed dismay that these people couldn't be his supporters because they looked low class. I, I think he was, you know, I think he's borderline insane. Uh, but well, I don't I mean, would they, would they have gotten into Mar-a-Lago? Let's put it that way. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> okay. No. <laughs> that's a great No, they would never have gotten into Mar-a-Lago. Uh, therefore, they couldn't possibly. Uh, that's I mean. Okay, uh, all right. Let's, um, let let us do our historical comparison because remember what I called you back and asked you to kind of brief people in the 21st century who have no sense of history because they're not taught history. Talk about Crystal Knock because I think this may have been the kind of screwy model for what did not happen. Uh, well, I don't know. I'm not sure I would agree with that. What was Crystal Knock? Uh, the Night of Broken Glass. So that takes us to Germany in November 19. 19- 38. Uh, and it's basically where the uh, the Nazi regime, having 
legally and economically harassed Jews in Germany for some time, uh, where things turned violent. That was precipitated, though. I mean, you know, there, there's a whole sort of backstory. What what happened is that's that, why we have three hours. Why? Do, where shall we begin? We will not go back to protoplasmic slime. Let's go back to <laughs> to to January 1933. Well, you could. Yeah, you when could. Hitler is made Chancellor of Germany, made Chancellor, I might say, in an entirely constitutional manner. So this is something to keep in mind. Hitler does not seize power. All right. Right. He took power legally. He then expanded upon that. Yeah, but, now, but, but, but hang on, thing. hang on. I know where you're All going, right. and let me loop around. All right. If Trump All right. had declared martial law and activated the Insurrection Act, he would have legally taken that power. Well, here's the real comparison. I, I think if you want to, if you want to find a comparison in 1930s Germany that in any way sort of echoes what happened in Washington recently. It was shortly after Hitler became chancellor. That again was highly controversial. Germany was a very polarized state. You know, uh, only about a third of the electorate had voted for the Nazis. That meant the two thirds had were essentially supportive of other poor parties, including the communists. And then what happened was that the German capital, the Reichstag caught fire. Yeah, but that, how? That took place in February. Well, it was arson. Oh, okay. Um, now, the question, so it was well, it when, was when, you, when, when you said caught yeah. fire, I, you know, I was looking for the other shoe. <laughs> well, yes, okay, it, it was arson. So the general assumption today is that it was the Nazis who said it. I mean, they certainly arranged it, because we'll, we'll see what happens. But that's, that's one of those things that if you look at holy evidence that it certainly was the Nazis who, who burned the Reichstag, which they had no particular respect for. What they managed to do, however, was they managed to blame it on this uh, kind of mentally limited guy named Marinus van der Lubbe, who was from Holland, uh, but who also had been affiliated with the Communist Party. And they said, aha, you see what has happened? The the, the sacred Reichstag of the German people, a symbol of our government, has been has been uh, set ablaze by this communist, and therefore there is a communist threat. This was all going to be the signal for a coup. And of course, the Reichstag then reconvenes elsewhere, and Hitler pushes through. One of the things that they hand him on a silver platter are the Enabling Acts. And what the Enabling Acts did is that they essentially suspended elements of the Constitution and allowed for a certain period of time Hitler to have quasi-dictatorial powers. They suspended general jurisprudence, allowed arrests and investigations to take place. This was all a reaction to the shocking attack on what? The Capitol. All right. So, in other words, what the Nazis did was to burned down the Reichstag, managed to effectively blame it on the other side as that there were enemies who were doing it, and from that way then leveraged for Hitler and the new government uh, ex- extended powers. And those powers never went away. The enabling acts were temporary. They became permanent. And over the next several months, the Nazis consolidated power. It was something, again, which took place slowly. That's the, the kind of yeah, of of and, where a yeah, and of where those, a, a crisis. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so for those who aren't familiar with Nazi Germany history, and by the way, you're doing a beautiful job. This is the plot of the Phantom Menace. George Lucas stole this. You got an evil emperor who pretends to have an attack that he 
had happened to play the victim to create the other army and is controlling mm. both armies to create a civil war while gaining uh, ever increasing power. And you got Princess Almodala or whatever saying, so this is how liberty dies, uh, not with uh, sadness, but with thunderous applause. That didn't happen here. I, I think you could also though, draw a bigger arc of history. And, and Rick, you're the historian. But as a libertarian, uh, it sure looks to me like we're slowly doing that. That the Congress is abandoning its its uh, its authority and powers, and creating an ever uh, increasing concentration of authority over there in the office of the presidency, such that we can get on day one of a presidency, or day one and two, something like 40 executive uh, uh, orders uh, that. It, it, historically, at least, would have required some time to be debated and then passed in Congress. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Executive orders do not require any debate. They're at the, you know, deliberation That's of the what president. I'm saying. I'm saying that. The, the Congress, we're seeing a slower, what happened in Germany, I think we're seeing happen in America, but over a period of 50 years, not over a period of five days. That slowly the executive gets more and more authority, more and more power. It, it effectively allows the president to legislate. Yeah, which should not but, be. But don't executive orders, Rick and Joe, have to be under the umbrella of previously passed congressional legislation, which needs detail like regulations, you know, the agencies go through and they write all kinds of regulations under the Enabling Act, that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, a president can't just create law. It has to be traceable well, back to some law already passed by Congress and Congress, and they're only, I think, good for sixty days, and unless Congress, Congress can, Congress can, can repeal it. It can, it can step in, and it, and it can suspend them, but they never do that. All right. Oh, I've That's never heard of, of that. Exactly. Remember, Rex eighty four. They never do. They're, they're they're supposed to have oversight over these things, and they do not exercise their oversight. So they have abrogated their constitutional responsibility. Right. Hell yes, they have. But why? All right. Why would the separate, independent, co-equal branch, and we're talking now decades, not just under Trump, why would they have systematically, since World War II, if not before, exceeded more and more power to the president? That's a really good question. That's why I, I asked it. Part, it, be, it becomes about loyalty to a party and to the president is the presumed leader of that party as your political leader. Hmm. Uh, also, that uh, the thing about executive orders is that because they tend to go into effect immediately is that they're a great way to push things through that uh, you can't you can't get through Congress. I mean, if you look at recently, if you look, I'd say certainly what, we're coming up to years, a, if not longer. Hey, Rick, we're coming up to a hard break, top of the okay. hour. So let's hold sure. it there. My guests this morning are Georgia Lambert, who's been very silent because she's waiting for exactly the right time, and it's coming up in the next half hour. She's also um, – see, am I doing something weird here? I think I'm doing something really weird. I'm having problems with my sound tonight. That's definitely not what I want to have happening. So here we are. Okay. Okay, we're on track. You're on the other side of midnight. My guests include Dr. Joseph Bookman, Dr. Rick Spence, as I said, Georgia Lambert. And we're talking about the past as a springboard to the future. When we come back, we'll look ahead. You are on the other side of midnight. 
My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, January 23rd, 2021. Amazing. It's already, it's starting again, the acceleration of time. Okay, we've been talking about what happened a couple, three weeks ago on the 6th, this extraordinary event, this insurrection, this mob attacking the Capitol. Uh, can, can Thea sent me a note and reminded me of something I wanted to bring up, guys. Uh, back to your comments about inside jobs, uh, Joseph. Are you aware that there is video, I've watched it a million times, showing the Capitol Police actively allowing the demonstrators, the insurrectionists, the mob in the Capitol? Literally, you yeah, can, you, it, you, you it's can see. It's my understanding that, that uh, part of the reason for that was that initially the vice president had adamantly um, asked that the protesters not be shot. Uh, and so some of that, I think, was was trying to diffuse, um, <clears throat> let them have access uh, a bit. I don't know that it's perfect evidence of inside um, cooperation. That's another possibility. But one possibility is they didn't want to shoot those protesters. And then you can look at how, if those guys had been black versus white, maybe they, <laughs> they would have been shot. Certainly our history... Uh, of police shootings um, seems to show something like that. I want to answer your earlier question, though. Okay. Why is Congress abandoning its power to an ever more powerful presidency? Yes, yes. And Rick, uh, you're the political science guy, but I'd be interested in your reaction to this. They do that because it increases their chances of getting reelected. I, I think they do everything around what increases their chances of getting reelected. And they see giving more power to the president as a way of uh, not having to answer to voters about why they didn't do a certain thing. Um, and, and I think the, the cure for what ills America is to somehow pull that back and, and, and get Congress as the, as the, the I, I think the founders intended it to be the more powerful of the three branches. What do you I think? I agree with that. Cool. I think so. 
I think that because it was, I mean, that actually is the represent, you know, in, in theory, that's the representative body. All right. The president is supposed to be merely a kind of executive administrator over the state bureaucracy and military. That, that, that's his job. And, and the whole idea behind executive orders is that it gave the, the manager of the state bureaucracy a means to rather quickly deal with regulatory or really what were essentially executive administrative decisions. That's what executive orders were supposed to be, but, it, but they can be much more sweeping than that. What I was starting to say before the break is that if you go back, certainly within the last two decades, maybe more, more in the last half century, that if you tend to look at a lot of the major changes uh, in American social or political policies, you'll notice that they're, they're not really don't place so much in, in Congress. They're essentially uh, judicial decisions or presidential fiats. That's, that's basically what we're governed by. Um, that's you know, things which are decided in you know, the decisions in federal courts, eventually going only up to the Supreme Court. Um, that has had, I think, has much more. Supreme Court decisions have probably had a greater effect on modern American history than any kind of legislative actions that tend to follow after the fact. Yeah, you've got a lot of people in Congress uh, who are, you know, especially if you're a congressman, you know, you've got a two-year term, so you're constantly hustling to be reelected. Um, you know, you can always try to explain to your constituents why things didn't happen because, well, you know, the other side held us back or you know, whatever the problems were, uh, as opposed to being accountable for laws that you actually do pass. And from a standpoint of, uh, you know, presidents like this because it gives them more power. But the presidency has, in my view, largely become a monarchy. It's an elective monarchy, but that's what it is. And that's what people expect from it. All right. This is the whole thing. You know, so the first day, you know, Joe Biden is going to sit down. He's going to sign all of these orders. What is our new king going to do next? All right. Hang on. The king is dead. If, Long live the king. If executive orders only are law because they refer to existing legislation formally enacted by both houses of Congress and a number of executive orders, you know, uh, have been dismissed by courts. Uh, Obama's famous DACA Act turned out to be uh, constitutionally illegal. And that's why the whole DACA thing has become such a football, because the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. So it isn't like the executive orders are just unregulated fiats. There is a touchstone back to legislation that's shall we say, appropriate to the time and hour when it must be applied? But the envelope is always being expanded. Okay, this is the thing that power will do. Power will not retrench. It will seek to expand itself. Yeah, but you've got two sets. You've got three centers of power. So why is there this well, unequal? Let's I, I put think, it this way. Is, is DACA completely dead? No. But it's no, going to be no, because, because it's out there. Because okay. it, it didn't. It, it, it exists. And it may and it may have been ruled unconstitutional wholly or in part, but the idea is not dead. It has been established, and it will probably be re-resurrected re, uh, in some. Well, way. it's being re-resurrected in this new immigration law that they're proposing. Right there, yeah, you go. Yeah, but immigration law. In other words, it will go to the Congress, both houses. They'll have to vote on it. I find it but very. But the law will ultimately follow what? It will follow what was initially an, an, an executive order. So, in effect, the executive order will stand. 
it will, it will, it will be tried. It will be questioned. It exactly. might be delayed. But ultimately, if the law confirms what was the executive order first, it's the chicken and the egg. Yeah, so but the White House proposes all to... kinds of legislation. So I, you know, I, I don't see that as anything irregular. The, the, the thing is there, that there is a return back to the constitutional process of making laws. And that's what I think is important here. What I find very interesting, and that probably is another show, is of all the legislative initiatives that this administration has got to confront, like yesterday, the first one they're proposing is a reformation of the existing immigration law. I find that very intriguing. Anybody want to take a whack at why they're doing that? I mean, other than for the obvious political reasons? It increases their chances of getting reelected. It's not too yeah. Okay, all right. I just want um, you guys. And what they've done, I mean, you can legally um, do all sorts of things. They're immoral, dysfunctional, destructive. Apparently, we can legally run up $30 trillion in debt. Uh, probably headed to 60 before the end of the Biden administration. I'm not sure that's sustainable, but yeah, it's all done legally. But my concern is we have a way out of whack imbalance of power such that this executive who is supposed to be something equivalent to an executive secretary following the will of a, of a more powerful uh, Congress has now become in effect, like Rick said, a monarch. And the people over in Congress are just sort of running kabuki theater to get reelected and not really doing anything all that useful from my point of view. Hmm. If I were to ask you guys for a prescription, how this can be changed, would you have a, uh, an interesting response? Well, what Jefferson said is we need to educate the electorate and start voting in ways that we put people there who, uh, who undo this. I, I'm fairly hopeless that that can happen. Um, Rick. <laughs> Do I think there's some sort of magic pill you can take that will fix everything? Um, no. Okay. Um, I, I think the, situ the, the situations evolve and they also decay, and this is simply part of the decay of the American political system. And nobody likes to hear that, but that's what it is. And it will continue to change, and it will continue to morph, and it will continue to become more executive-centered until it becomes, well – Probably a monarchy in a realtor. I mean, I'm not sure there's anything you can you can do some sort of magic button that will that will set this process back. It didn't get here overnight, and it's not going to change anything quickly. Hmm. Referring back, I have a go ahead. Libertarian friend who who said to me years ago, and I thought he was extremist, and and now I think he was perhaps prescient. Uh, nobody ever got more liberty by voting for it. Not once, not ever. The only time liberty arises is out of the ashes of destruction, and that's where we're headed. Uh, and then we'll see. Well, you guys are really, you know, optimistic tonight. Yeah. It's the broad arc of history. Human beings love to give over their authority, their responsibility, if you want, for determining right and wrong and good and evil and what I should or shouldn't be doing. They love to turn that over to a monarch and say, just tell me what to do, and then I don't have to think about it. That seems to be pretty close to what I see as, as the overarching nature of human nature. And that, of course, is why we had the highest number of people voting in this last election of any time in U.S. history including the heyday of voting in the 50s and, and 60s. Mm, I think it Hey, but you know what that amounts to? That amounts to slightly less than 67% of the electorate voted. That means that one-third did not 
So how do we get right. how do we get the other third motivated to vote? Well, I think the question you have to ask is that why aren't they voting? And I don't believe it's because they're uh, all too lazy, distracted, or drunk to do so. Some of them, yes. But that's not why most of them don't vote. Most of them don't vote because they don't believe in the system. Right. They why didn't the – think... Go ahead. You first. So go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's, you could ask the question, why don't the slaves get together and vote for something? Because it does exactly nothing. I think that metaphor is a little bit out there, Joseph. <laughs> oh, I agree. But I think it's at the extremes that you can learn. I, I mean, when it is an extreme. Voting produces all kinds of changes. A lot, I think a lot of Americans and, and generally a lot of people on earth have given up the idea that voting for, and in this case, two choices. I mean, my liberal friends are saying that Biden's a neocon. So you know, the perception <laughs> of how different they are is different from how different they actually are when they get in office and start acting. And I think a lot of voters see that and they think well, there's not a whole hell of a heck of a lot of difference here. Why bother? I have how a question. Am I being Rick? Yeah, I have a question. Uh, I mean, that, that's generally the, the statement that I will get from people. And I've had discussions with people who have uh, who, who have quite clearly decided that they're not going to vote. They're just, you know, that they don't. I guess one way to put it is in a kind of political sense, they don't believe in God anymore. And they're not going to go to church and they're not going to take mass because they don't believe this is going to affect anything. It is an empty ritual. I mean, I could, you know, again, I mentioned this before in other shows. I'm just saying, you know, that I went sort of through the motions on the, on the election, but I don't think I was doing anything more than going through the motions. And I some because I live in a state which in terms of electoral college count, anything else, the way it was going to come out, it wouldn't have made any difference whether I or anybody else in the state of Idaho voted for a damn thing. All right. In, in the greater mix of the, on the national level, it's meaningless. It's simply it was simply a ritual which people go through. But it didn't have any effect upon the greater outcome of the thing. If we'd all stayed home, it would have been exactly the same. And, there's about you know, 10 states in which the presidential battle is fought, maybe 10. Right. That's maybe generous. Right. You know, the so-called uh, battle, but that's because of the Electoral College. Which is probably a good thing, but I'd be interested in Rick's take on that too. But the, the, and the other thing I'd ask Rick is, do we really have a popular vote? I hear popular vote, popular. We don't have a popular vote. Because people in states like West Virginia or Hawaii, where the Electoral College vote is set for the next century for whatever party dominates, Democrats in Hawaii, Republicans in West Virginia, they know that's the case. So you don't really have a popular vote because the popular the population in those states knows that their vote doesn't really count. No, but that's if not really – hang on. Vote, Joseph, Joseph, stop, stop, stop. That's not true. Look at Georgia. Georgia is as deep red, red, red as you can get. We now have two Democratic blue senators from a deep red state, and the only reason is on-the-ground organization, motivation. No, it's, a, it's a red state with a big blue dot called Atlanta, which grew like crazy. Um, yeah, so, but, you know, but the blue Atlanta doesn't just... matter unless people vote. And when you're in a red state surrounded by – you know, uh, you know, you're you're a blue part of a red state surrounded by red. The incentive you're, is voting is not going to make point. any difference. I'm arguing about the 40 states. You can't say we have a popular vote in the United States because in a good 40 states, the electoral college vote is pretty much certain, like Rick just said. I don't buy if, that. I go well, back to Georgia. It all depends. Let's on, go to Rick for the tie-breaking vote. Hang on, hang on, <laughs> hang on. 
the reason I bring up George is is because life is not, you know, what was that line in Terminator 2? There is no fate. The only reason those 40 states elect the same way every time is because there's not enough action on the ground to make a change. You have to come down to the one that matters. All right. And the one that matters is the electoral college vote, not the popular vote. It doesn't matter how many votes you get in the popular yeah, vote. Yeah, but you, you only get the, the popular but, vote. But you only get the electoral uh, electrical, I keep doing that. I wonder why. Electoral college vote if you win the popular vote in that state. So you can't say that I don't think I I don't think electors in most states are actually legally bound to to do that. They can vote any way they please. Oh no 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 no. The, no, no, the, the Supreme, Supreme Court, Court just threw that argument out. Okay. All they right. are um, absolutely now legally bound. And yeah. unfortunately, of, I think they are now, but the previous were they previously? Right. All right. What rules have we been operating in through the rest of our history up to this time? And that was the intent of the college, that the electors would be independent yes. uh, in, in order to, to not take uh, 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 the, the tyranny of democracy. Uh, to a destructive point. Uh, we had that as a check, and that check, the Supreme Court now has ruled that states can bind electors. Some states don't, but in states where they're bound, uh, they can ignore the vote of a so-called faithless elector. Okay, so they, they can. In some cases, they can't. So that's still yeah. a, you know, it, it's <laughs> it's kind of a weird situation, but that's what ultimately matters. It's the electoral vote. And here again, you've got some places where it's, they're bound, and in some cases they're not, and where traditionally they weren't, and where you had the court decision to decide that. And again, it has absolutely nothing to do with the popular vote. So no, I, we, I we don't, don't elect event presidents through popular vote, where they're elected through the Electoral College, as the Constitution prescribes. Well, what do you think of these ideas that the elect- Electoral College should be abandoned? And Georgia, I am going to get to you. Don't worry, unless you want to just break in if you got a thought. <laughs> You're being well, very silent. I am. I'm. I'm listening with rapt attention to the conversation so far. Okay, guys. Um, that, but back to you then. Should we have an electoral college at all? Given the way it was set up when the country was being, you know, created. If you're asking me and my druthers, I'm asking okay. both of you. Start with Rick. Go ahead. Uh, I, I I would abolish it. I'm not sure that that would necessarily solve anything, but I'd be interested to see what would happen. Okay. Now, technically, the only way I, I won't no. Let, let me let me re- re- retract that. What's that term they use um, to revise and extend my remarks? <laughs> Let's assume that the the, the electoral college. Uh, became a target that it, we all wanted to get rid of it the only way currently that i know of constitutionally to get rid of it is if you have 30 what it's 33 states and it has to go through a process in each state legislature on, on a congressional amendment that kind of thing am i right rick mm-hmm. but there's well an, you'd need a constitutional amendment yeah okay there's an alternative or a constitutional convention those were the two. Yeah, there's, yes. a, there's an alternative way that I have heard for linking the college and the popular vote irrevocably so that they, became, they become essentially one. And you don't need a constitutional amendment to do that. And I can't remember the specifics. Rick, do you? 
It's I do. It's oh. where you have states pass laws that say our electors will follow the popular vote nationally, the so-called popular vote. Nationally. Right. I don't right. think it's a popular vote. Um, well, if it's not popular, who's voting? But then people who argument people who are voting under the electoral college, knowing that there's an electoral college. As long as the electoral college is there, you don't really have a popular vote because voter behavior in states where like Hawaii or West Virginia, those are the two big extremes, um, know that the electoral college vote is done so they don't go vote. If there was a real popular vote, they might think my one vote matters nationally. But if they live in a state where they know the electoral college vote, that changes it. So I don't think you can call it a popular vote. Just total up the votes in all the states that resulted in what electors were elected. That's not equivalent to a true popular vote. It may be close to that and close enough not to argue about it. Well, we given, given that we've we don't had... know how voters would behave in the absence of the electoral college. So Rick is voting for getting rid of it and to see what happens. What about well, you? Jim? I would just say that. If you create a situation in which the electoral college is, is 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 totally tied, is bound to the popular vote, then you've just made the perfect argument that you don't need an electoral college because it's redundant. It doesn't do anything. All right, the electoral college wasn't created. I mean, you're good, bad, or indifferent. It wasn't created constitutionally to simply parrot the popular vote. It was meant to ride herd on the popular vote. It was meant, in effect, to manipulate it. Yes, that's to basically it's suppress it. It, 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 was meant to suppress to, it. it was meant to enhance the union of independent states and keep the states yeah. in a union. If you do away with the popular vote, swing states disappear and swing cities appear. So you're going to get all of your campaigning in the high population centers and you're going to get virtually no campaigning in the rural parts of America. And the founders saw that as a recipe for civil war, and they wanted to prevent that. Um, yeah, whether that, that hang on, hang on, hang on. That was question. in an era where you had to go by horse or carriage or coach and physically show up in a community in Montana. We have something yes. now called <clears throat> the Internet and social media and Zoom, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So it's not like you have to physically – I mean the idea of a physical rally, to be in a particular place and have a whole bunch of people you know, congregating, that doesn't really educate voters at all on anything. It's just kind of a I good time. I was explaining time. history, and your point is well taken. So if you went to a popular vote where everybody knew that the only way they could be part of the process was to really pay attention in media and multiple media so there's no single-point failure – I don't think well, the, it would deprive the rural states with fewer population compared to, let's say, California, which has, what, 35 million people? The question is whether you would have uh, governors and states that felt ignored in the national process moving to secede. I don't think that's likely <laughs> now. Okay? No. The second question is, and the bigger point is when you have two choices from the two dominant political parties in this nation that are virtually identical in how they act once elected in terms of debt, uh, international policy, bombing, funding in the military, all the things that really matter, um, what's the point of voting anyway? There's not a lot of difference in how they act once they get in office. Hmm. Which is the perfect segue to my next question. Uh, in the last day or so, uh, Ex-President Trump 
says he wants to form a third major political party called the, the Patriot, Patriot Party. Called the Patriots yes. Party. Okay. Thinking back, Rick, our historian, to Teddy Roosevelt, would you like to describe to a lot of the Trump aficionados who think this is the coolest thing since sliced bread what happened when this kind of idea was floated before? Well, there's kind of an interesting comparison there. So in the election of 1912, it was a three-way race. Uh, the Republican Party, much to Teddy Roosevelt's chagrin, um, put up again William Howard Taft. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt got pissed about that and decided he was going to form his own party called the Bull Moose Party. And he ran, and he ran pretty well. What he managed to do was to elect the Democrat Woodrow Wilson. All right. Hmm. And that's what it did. It it split the vote. It elected Wilson. Who was one of our biggest know, racist presidents in history? Anyway. Hmm. And uh, you doesn't have... start it on Woodrow. You know, Woodrow Wilson was Woodrow Wilson. Actually, he was Tom Wilson. But anyway. Um, <laughs> well, 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 but, but that, uh, how about, you, how about yeah. you can't get away with saying that. How did we get Woodrow? No, his, name was, his name was Thomas Woodrow Wilson. Because oh. Woodrow sounds more distinguished, doesn't it? So, you know course. how many Tom Wilsons there are in the country? Yeah. I'm going to vote for Tom Wilson, or I'm going to vote for Woodrow Wilson. And since Woodrow, Thomas Woodrow Wilson was nothing if not vain, then uh, <laughs> he, he generally went for that. Well, he, he, he so, was from you know, Princeton. Like most people. You know, he was from Princeton. Come on. Yes. Well, yes. I go back to the was, Bull Moose Party when you've got the Reform Party and Ross Perot from 92. Talk about yes. that. All right. There you uh, go. And, well, and, well, talk about that. You know – Pro's the last independent or non-Republican Democrat to get in the debates. So you now have a bipartisan debate commission, which Dan Rather and others, or Walter Cronkite, called a fraud on the American people. The League of Women Voters just went nuts at the time. But we, now we accept it as normal. We have this bipartisan commission that keeps any third candidate off that stage. Pro's Patriot Party, and I know we're coming up on a break. Yeah, just so you um, know, Joe, I, I worked on the Anderson campaign. Oh, cool. And he got in that debate, but but uh, only with Carter or only with Reagan because Carter refused to uh, uh, participate. But anyway, the, the change now is the cost of starting a new political party because of changes in state laws. And every state has a different process, every one of them, to get on the ballot. And it will cost a new political party to gather signatures and fight through whatever you have to fight through to get up 50 state ballot access at least a couple of million dollars. Up front, I don't think Trump wants to spend that. He'll fundraise with the idea of getting a political. Do you party. know how much Certainly. money they raised after the election from November seventh? Yes. yes, almost three hundred million dollars from yeah. Trump supporters. So he's got a huge war chest. So I don't see this as an idle threat at all. He's got the money, and it's not. It's 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 not his. You know, so. If he's serious, what do you project for the political neophytes that don't remember the Bull Moose Party or the Reform Party and the lessons of history? What if, he, if he's successful, it's the end of the Republican Party. Okay. In what way? we got about a minute and a half. Describe how that happens. I want to see if Rick agrees. I'm going to be quiet. It's the end of the Republican Party. Well, the Republican Party may be kind of staring, at, you know, at the toilet bowl whirling down. It's already right ended. Now. Yes, it's uh, you know, it's what well, they used to. Well, they called it what? Dead man walking. 
Well, I, I assume what we're getting at is that if Trump was able to successfully, you know, to actually get a political party off the ground and, and still get enough people to follow him, it would draw away much of the populist conservative base, which pretty much electorally sustains the Republican Party, so far as I can see, and who in the world would vote for them? I mean, I'm not sure there are that many boardrooms and country clubs to carry an election anywhere. Kevin, yeah, remember, can, you know, if he, can... he raised in, in the wake of the, this election – and we got about 30 seconds here. He raised almost $300 million, not from corporations, but from the average Trump supporter. Well. So he doesn't need corporations. Dollars no, aren't no, I was saying, yeah. I'm saying that, that if Trump managed to suck away – you know what some people, you know, on on the left they would call it the deplorable vote. Okay, <laughs> if if he managed to suck away most of the, I think, genuinely frustrated leaderless people who tended to see something in him, rightly or wrongly, that that's the same. You know, the the sort of conservative social base that continually votes Republican because they don't want to vote Democrat because they somehow see them as the enemy, even though the Republican Party doesn't really stand for what most of they believe in and generally views them as deplorables as well, then there wouldn't be anybody else other than a few people in country clubs or boardrooms to vote for a Republican candidate. Mm. I'll tell you what, hold it there. Short of that populist base, there's no party. Hold it there. At the bottom of the hour, my guests this morning are Georgia Lambert, who's saving some incredibly insightful things for the next half hour. Joe Bookman and Rick Spence, you're on the other side of midnight. We're looking ahead. What would happen if Trump really did create the Patriot Party? We're going to look a little more at this on the other side. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday, January 23rd, 2021. 
We're talking tonight about the future. Where do we go next? And believe me, we're going to get into the metaphysical part of this because I think there's a huge metaphysical component to what's been going on, tracing back, of course, to our model of the physics, which we have measured. But I want to kind of throw out this question. If, if, if Trump is to succeed in creating a third party, and the only way he can do that is be by being his major personality with a several hundred million dollar war chest, and he runs again in 2024. The problem is there's a slight little hiccup in the Senate called, it's, it's, it's basically, you know, this is the only president in history who has been impeached twice. And now the second impeachment vote has gone to the Senate. It's going to be taken up February 8th, which is, uh, I'm sorry, February 9th. That's a Tuesday. And then the question is, if 17 Republicans plus all the Democrats vote for his impeachment, Donald Trump will be formally impeached by a U.S. Congress. The next part of that particular scenario, there's a second vote that goes with it, and that is by a simple majority, not 67 members of the Senate, but by a simple majority, the next vote will be that he can never run for public office again. So, Rick, you're the historian. As part of this strategy of the new party, if Trump is legally, you know, forbidden under the Constitution from running and being head of this new party, A, is there anyone else that could pick up the cudgels? And B, would it go anywhere? And, of course, the final question is, is this scenario constitutionally permitted? Well, the first thing I would say is that if I was Donald Trump and Congress passed a special law forbidding me and me alone from ever running for for public office again, I'd go to court about it. And he's got money. I mean, whatever you think of Trump or anything else, that's a little – I don't know. Something about that just doesn't sound quite right. Well, to me. wait, wait, wait. Are and you we're going to forbid this person from ever holding public office. Um, well, but, but, but there is also the um, third section of the Fourteenth Amendment, which specifically forbids um, insurrectionists in the United States from holding public office. So well, you'd have to prove insurrection, and and you'd have to get a legal definition on that. You know how complicated that would be. Well, we're I mean, in the midst of it. Around... We're, we're out. Go ahead. Okay, I mean it's you can use any number of terms for what happened at the Capitol. Insurrection is a kind of. I think that's kind of making more out of it than it than it actually was. But the point is, how are you going to prove someone is an insurrectionist? Okay, that's that's what you would have to do. You can't simply charge against someone. What exactly did that entail? Okay, how precisely did Donald Trump participate or encourage in, in an insurrection? Especially if he ever showed up to it. I'm not trying to defend him in this place or pay his lawyer. No, but I the understand. point is, you're opening up a, a whole can of a can of worms there. And, and I don't know whether any, you know, any 
legally that, that could ever really be sustained. The bizarre thing, the thing that I think is bizarre, is that we're now trying to, or let's say we, we now have Congress really trying to impeach a president who isn't president anymore. Well, there yeah, is. And, and apparently. Yeah. Okay. Impeachment's supposed to be to remove from office. Look at the, look right. at no, 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 but, 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 but see, look, this is kind of circular reasoning. If there's a loophole in the Constitution where a president in you know the last few months of his office can do any damn thing he wants, violate every law, you know, satisfy every bizarre instinct, impulse, whatever, and then get away scot free by simply having his term run out. I mean, where is the check and balance there? Well, if there are criminal charges to be brought against him, then you can bring criminal charges. Well, I think so, we're going to see a few of those. Okay, well then that's that's the way to do about it. If he violated laws, then you you know you you make a case, you get an yeah. indictment, you try for that and see if you can prove it. Charge but him as an accessory to, to murder. Right, trying trying to you know bar the way. I mean, the the idea of trying to impeach him at this point, with the idea of somehow trying to prevent him ever running again, you know what that makes me look like is that somebody's awfully afraid of him. So that reminds me of that old Soviet phrase, uh, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. And we do not want to head down that path. We don't want to head down that path. Um, insurrection's a, a tall order for, for what happened in D.C. on the 6th, in my view. Uh, things got out of hand for sure. Uh, and if it was a coup, it was like we both agreed earlier, we all agreed earlier, it was the wimpiest coup in the history of coups on this planet. You didn't have an active military force doing what really needed to be done to, to, to create a dictatorship. Nothing even remotely close to that. What you may have had was a guy who, uh, who, um, who might have got up against the border of, of something that looks more like an accessory to murder hmm. um, or other crimes. And it looks like he may be taken out by the Southern District in New York for all sorts of tax fraud and other crimes. I mean, there's a whole mess here. Um, and, and um, you know, <laughs> The politics. But wait, 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 wait. See, that doesn't really cut him off from the political process, because Rick, you remember Mayor Curley in Boston, Mm -hmm. who ran from prison and won as mayor of Boston. So democracy. So even if the Southern District, even if the Southern District throws the book at Donald Trump, he can still form a political party, he can still run for office, and who knows what could happen. And if a majority of Americans want him elected, you have a problem with that? Right. Isn't that what democracy... I mean, if if somehow Donald Trump, I don't know, from prison, can manage to convince, remember, a majority of the American electorate, whose great wisdom we're extolling here, uh, if if he can win the election, he's the choice of the people. Isn't that democracy? Which goes back so to how, how 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 the only way that you, you to preemptively deny people the opportunity to vote for someone, even a bad guy, only shows that you're afraid of him. That's the only thing that it shows. It doesn't show that the populace is afraid of him, but it doesn't show anything else. It shows shows people in the political establishment are somehow afraid he's going to come back and get them. 
And, you know, that's just really kind of, not to put a, too fine of a point on it, silly. There are more important things to be done. If Donald Trump has committed indictable crimes, then let him be indicted and tried, and if sufficient evidence convicted of them, let the courts take their course in that. Those are legal questions. But to try to drive a political stake through his heart to keep him from rising from the political grave is really just silly. And, and it's probably what he wants. Guys, 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 guys. Hang on, hang on. How do you then circumvent the 14th Amendment? I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah, but you, you're, you're saying that it's, it's unconstitutional to do this, and it's in the Constitution that if you are an insurrectionist, you are not well, going to be permitted to be in a political office of responsibility ever again. Because – because no one has proven him to be an insurrectionist. But that's no what a trial. But is. that's but that's what a trial in the Senate is all about. Really, you don't think it's a political gamesmanship? Of course, it's political gamesmanship. Yeah, okay, fine. Thanks. But, but, but you don't. So have, it's, it's, you don't want to head down. But, but, it, but, it's, but it's not an either or. Sometimes it's things not that are a real trial. Yes. Okay. It's not a real trial. Well, then why is it in the Constitution? And why was it used before? I think it was a guy named Belknap under President Grant was found out to have been, you know, committing extraordinary, uh, you know, corrupt things, bags of money, you know, the whole Agnew thing. And so they were going to basically impeach him. And he got wind of it and he resigned. And they still impeached him. And Here's in this the thing, Richard, hang on, I, I don't I, think, I'm not finished okay. the story. Thank you. In the Senate, he was acquitted, but he had a trial, and there was a process under the Constitution, and the Supreme Court never said it doesn't work. It's illegal. It's not constitutional. So we have precedent. Go ahead. You can't just label someone an insurrectionist. You can't just throw out the term, argue that this no, person you is an show insurrectionist, and, and convict them of it. It's like arguing that they're a witch, all right? You can accuse someone of being a witch, and and really, you know, to charge someone with being an insurrectionist. Or, I mean, that has to be. <laughs> I, I don't know of any real. This is this is where we would need a real lawyer on the show. Is anybody <laughs> who has a there's a there's an actual legal definition of precisely or even reasonably what defines an insurrectionist, and I think you, that would be really kind of difficult to prove. I think the term is squishy, and I'm not sure that you could prove it. Uh, and, you know, even if the, the Senate at this particular in charged atmosphere, which, you know, isn't a jury of one's peers, it is not uh, part of the judicial process, I think the whole thing would be highly questionable. It, it all begins to smack of a political show trial. Yeah, and, and then we have something the else. Once yeah. you do it once, the other side's going to do it back, and the standard for insurrection starts dropping and dropping to where, to where we open the door to a real mess. Um, and it's not a real trial because, as, as Rick just said, you don't have jurors randomly selected from the population. That's what makes our justice system work. The Senate is a political body. That's why you have to have two-thirds to remove from office. Remove them from office if that's deserved, and then the voters either affirm or, or, or contradict yeah, that but in the wait, next wait, round the, of under, under, the, under the impeachment clause, the two go hand in hand. 
conviction and then you know Here, here's the political thing I started to interrupt you on earlier. Go ahead. If you really want to destroy the Republican Party, you do not want to prevent Trump from running for office again. You want a Patriot Party created. I don't think the Democrats have any fire in their bellies to actually convict this guy in a Senate trial. Um, I think their uh, their uh, rhetoric may say that to fire up their voter base. But the thing the Democratic Party would want more than anything is a Patriot Party run by Trump. That's the end of the Republican Party, at least for the next couple of election cycles. That's why I'm, I'm having you guys on, because all of these things are never discussed in, in any media that most people have access to. They're arcane. They're, they're burrowed in history, and there's never enough time to go through. So, see, what I'm setting up here is the next three, four weeks are going to be pivotal at several different levels for where this republic is going to go. Um, and Kintia sent me a note, which I thought was interesting, and I'd like to bring her on to ask her own question, because she said that there is something else that you guys might want to focus on, and I'm not quite sure what she's talking about. So, Kintia? Well, no, I was referring to, I was commenting about trying to go and convict him or impeach him or, you know, take him to task for starting an insurrection. I mean, the the new government, if it is a new government, has to focus on creating solutions for all these problems, not get sucked up in some melodrama about the past. Ah, okay. I think that would be a waste of energy. Amen to that. And I also think it's what Trump wants. The way he raised money is to say they victimized me. A poor me. I mean, it, it, don't throw me in the briar patch. There's got to be Trump looking at, at, at a, a convict. By the way, he's been impeached twice now. He's not been convicted once. We'll see if there's a conviction in the Senate. You know, here it is. He's he's out of office, and we're still all talking about Donald Trump, which I would suspect <laughs> exactly. also greatly pleases Donald Trump. I mean, it's it's still the center of of the conversation. Um, yeah, but how can you have a major figure in history? And regardless of what you think of Trump, he's a major figure in American and global history. How can you not talk about him when there is there are echoes of things that could prescind? from this failed experiment for the last four years. Well, here's where I would have a little quibble. He's not an important figure in history yet. He's an important figure in current events or very recent history, but how he's going to be regarded a hundred years from now, 50 years from now, even 20 years from now, I don't know. That could change. He may, he may, this may, the Trump administration might turn out to be a major turning point in the history of the republic, or it might not. Okay. So I'm, 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 I'm not convinced that Donald Trump is necessarily – I mean, we're all still talking about him now. But will people still be talking about him 20 years from now, or more importantly, 100 years from now? I don't know. Well, doesn't oh, history – I wonder – Go ahead. I wonder why no one's talking about the elephant in the room, which is why is the military still held up in the Capitol? Because there was an insurrection and they're terrified. Really? And why are the locks on the outside of the gate? 
Well, it's not the military. It's the National Guard from a bunch okay. of states. It's not right, technically so the armed forces of the United States. Okay. Momentum so right now. Right now charge of that National Guard? I believe it's the sergeants of arms of the two chambers uh, in of the Capitol. Well, there's the head of FEMA, and then there's the head of, uh, I'm blanking on the other name. Department both of, of them are special ops generals. Department of Homeland Security? Right. Uh, I, don't, mm, I, I don't want to commit. I'm, not, I'm blanking right now. But the point is, is that there's more military now, not less after the inauguration. Why would that be? Well, if I was working in the in that building right now as an elective representative or senator, I'd be happy to keep him around for a little while, maybe until the impeachment trial is over. Well, <clears throat> I have seen that. Senators like acting like they were happy to have them there, and a few hours after the inauguration. They booted them all down to a garage. No, 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 no. They, they, they sent five. They sent five thousand uh, National Guard to this garage, and nobody can figure out what the hell happened. And they invited them back a few hours later, back because into the Because it was a protest. How can we treat our National Guard that way? There was one bathroom down there and one outlet in this cold weather. They yeah, were and, uh, Biden called them that. directly and apologized. Mm, yeah, after everybody made a big fuss. Well, I, I think the members of the, the House and Senate wanted them back, too. Exactly. Capitol Police directive because they were. See, this is I what's bizarre about the Capitol Police. I mean, there should be some major heads rolling amid the Capitol Police. And I'm not talking about the, the cop that retired and the two sergeants of arms that just quit. You know, they need to be in, in front of some kind of committee. And forced to go through, you know, TikToks of moment by moment, why they did not do what they were being paid to do. And why were they letting these agitators in? There's video of them escorting them in. Yes. And I looked at that. Because they didn't want to shoot them. They were trying to defuse no, the situation. No. There's also what Mike Pence said. When them arriving. And there's video of, and I have it on the Friday Night Show page, there's video of agitators that are held up in a room in the Capitol. They're planning their plan. It's like they've been there since before anything started. And they're mapping out what they're going to do. And they're talking about, well, down this room, you go here and down this room. Clearly, they had inside intel. Yeah, I, I think that's going to come out with said that earlier and any decent investigation. And the further thing, did you see the video inside the Senate where they're riffling through the desks? And looking at papers and saying things like, oh, Cruz really, you know, approve of us doing this. And then they all stand up, you know, on the, on, on the dais to take their group shot, including, you know, Mr. Buffalo Horns. And there's one Capitol Police guy standing there acting like a tour guide, basically saying, again, on, on, on tape, you know, don't, don't destroy anything. Don't touch anything. You know, can you just leave? Right. But Mr. Buffalo Horn was not a Trump supporter. In fact, there's video, I have that also, of these guys breaking a window. And you can hear the Trump supporters saying, stop that, stop that. And finally, one Trump supporter wrestles the guy to the ground. I'll tell you what, um, let me bring in Barbara. 
Yes, I put the question she had in the chat, but it's good for her to ask the question. Yeah, I want to do that, but I but I need to figure out how to get out of where I am. Uh, where there we are, I think. No, I don't want to do that. I mean, it, at some level, the bottom line answer to these questions is uh, human beings don't always act rationally, and it's not always a coordinated thing. And there's no answer to the why. Huh. You know what I smell in all of this? Yeah. Chaos. Okay. Rather than having some sort of mastermind somewhere behind it, whether it's Trump or whatever it is, I don't think there's any. I don't think anybody's in charge. Hmm. I think that they're they're all don't know. I I think it's a it's it's confusion, shock, <laughs> and n there's there's no there's nobody really in charge. And, and maybe even a strategic retreat. Like, I'm not sure what to do. I'm going to back up a bit. It's not like I'm cooperating, letting people in the Capitol because I'm some part of some great conspiracy. It's sort of the fog of war. Well, I think the military is in charge right now, personally. Well, certainly in the district. The National Guard. Yeah. But again, if you had a major attack on a one of the branches of government, wouldn't that be this, the normal reaction? Keith, I'm going to do a bit of housekeeping on on uh, on my screen here. Keith, I can't seem to get this screen to move. Can you come in and see why it's not working in the show machine? There you are. Anyway, I still want to talk about the moon rock. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna to get to that. Okay. Uh, in fact, why don't we do that now? Uh, one of the curious things which has arisen. In the last several days is the idea that the entire inauguration is fake and that Biden and Harris are not vice president and president and that Trump is secretly still president and that what we see in the photographs in the Oval Office is that, is that we see uh, a, a set from Castle Rock, which basically um, replicated the uh, Oval Office of the uh, Bill Clinton administration. And so I was very intrigued with how this president, Biden, has decided to decorate his Oval Office. And one of the things that popped out immediately in an article in, in Popular Mechanics a couple of days ago is that he specifically called over, and I hear some kind of echo of me in the background, so we got to get rid of that. He, he called over to NASA and he said, um, can you send me a moon rock for display in the Oval Office? And uh, Barbara will probably get to you in the next uh, uh, in, in, in the next segment. Okay, so you can go get a glass of water, cup of tea, or whatever. Okay. Um, the, the point is when you t when I took a look at the at the rock. In fact, you can all go see it if you go up to Radio with Pictures. Again, for people who are new to the show, you go to the other side of midnight dot com and you click on the other side of midnight um uh that that's our url that will take you to our home page click on the banner for tonight for january 23rd which is you know where we go next that will take you to the guest page go to my items go down to item number six item number five is the story uh from the washington post uh, about the rock but item number six is the rock itself uh Joseph, do you want to kind of talk about the rock? Um, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know. All right. I'll talk about the rock. It came from Apollo 17. Um, 
I believe there's um, video documentation of the collection of every lunar sa sample. Uh, it was cut or, or hammered or chipped away from something. I know when you look at it, you see something that you see as, as technology. It's so amazing. Uh, I, it's so amazing. I don't. Different it's people. interesting that it's in a triangular see, case. See, different, you... different people look at something evidence. This is why I want to do a whole show on epistemology. Because it's like so the, the question of how do we know what we know. When I showed yes. this to Kinthea, she instantly saw it. When I show it to you and to Dr. Spence, you don't see it. And it's so not as a piece of technology, and it's an awfully large piece if you're talking about some sort of advanced civilization. I mean, it's the size of a half the size of a baseball or something. What I found interesting that I want to talk about, though, is what's to the left and what's to the right of the rock. Have you looked at the at the high def picture where you can get close in and see that on the left is the writings of Washington, on the right more writings of Washington, and for some reason it's placed between volume 26 and volume 27, and above it are volumes 20, 21, and 22, but there's no volumes 1 to 19 anywhere to be found. I find that <laughs> curious. Very interesting. I mean, when, 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 when NASA... If it was between volume 19 and 20, and it was sitting there at 19 and a half, Richard, I, I would have exploded. When I zoomed in on the books, that's what I was expecting to see. Okay. What's up with 26 and 27? I'll well, be quiet. Well, the physics is the 27 lines on the general cubic surface, so that's one indication. The triangular tetrahedral glass case in which this is, you know... I mean, when, when you look at it, for those of you who have listened to my show over the last couple, three weeks, what does it look like? It looks like the top or the bottom portion of the Utah tetrahedral monolith. In other words, it's a sample encased in an equilateral triangle for very specific numerical reasons. And that, I think, does connect to the bookcase, but in a little higher level. No, when I look at this, when I first looked at it, I looked at those three straight edges, the top, the bottom, and, and the middle. And then I looked at the left-hand side, and I saw the completion. It is an octahedron. So then the question is, how did a moon rock, you know, scrabbled together by meteor impacts over billions of years, come to resemble a rather large octahedron, which NASA carefully mounted, in this case, so the points are down and up. And if you, and I didn't do this tonight because we're going to do all show on this later. But if you look at this as comparison to some of the Ryugu uh, images or the Bennu images, they look the same. Geometric octahedrons badly, badly eroded. And when I said this was an artifact, I didn't imply, Joe, that it was a piece of technology. To me, it looks like some kind of a symbolic totem or a piece of a very important expressive piece of art that was carefully picked up. I don't buy the story. It was chipped off Tracy's Rock and brought home. Okay. I thought you, I thought you were saying it was a piece of technology. In some no, way. no. Remember, uh, and, and I'll look again. I'm going to look more closely. We are, we are coming up to the, uh, oh, darn, darn, darn. You know, this, this time thingy. Is really getting to me. Anyway, we're we're coming up to the up to the top of the hour, midnight, the witching hour here. One more hour left. We'll be taking calls 
on the other side of the break. And uh, we'll also bring on Barbara Honiger, who has something very intriguing to ask. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Imagine losing everything, even though you did something wrong. Hmm. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Holdwin and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight, to this now Sunday night in the land of enchantment. Um, We're going to bring on Barbara because she had a very interesting question, and I think it would be useful if uh, we could have her uh, talk about it directly. So let me switch the right pots here, and we'll bring her up. And Barbara, I think you were on the air. Hi, Richard. There you are. I'm here. Yeah. Well, I have a burning question. I'd just like to make one uh, kind of background comment um, to sure. kind of set up my question. And that is, um, I realize that we still have, uh, what is it, a couple of weeks or whatever to go um, while, while the, um, uh, the Biden-Harris administration is pulling together evidence and the prosecutors and DOJ are pulling together evidence. But so I think we should hold our powder. Personally, I mean, we're speculating about what the future could be. I happen to believe that Trump is an insurrectionist, and I think that there's going to be a lot more evidence that will go to that direction. As far as I'm personally concerned, if I were voting, uh, I would vote to convict him. And the reason I would vote to convict him, interestingly, is the fact that he literally 
um, fiddled while Rome burned. Uh, he sat there watching the violence escalate on TV, reportedly pleased by what he saw in some cases, and did nothing. So that frames my question. My question for everybody is, why didn't Trump insurrection act? To me, that's the big question, because remember, if I recall my recent history, scouring the New York Times and the Washington Post every day cover to cover, uh, if I recall correctly, it wasn't long ago with the Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrations in Lafayette Park and in Washington, D.C., that uh, Trump did call in those, uh, those uh, uniformed but unmarked, unidentified federal personnel. Uh, and he did so because of a threat to federal property. Well, if the Congress of the United States, the Capitol, is not federal property, I don't know what is. So why didn't Trump invoke the Insurrection Act? That's my question. An exquisite question. Guys, who wants to answer first? Silence. Obviously, <laughs> nobody. <laughs> hey, George, you I want to take you. a I got you. <laughs> Our scholars seem to be very silent tonight. Uh-huh. I think that's a very oh, burdened question. Hang on, hang on. It's my fault. I have the damn pot down. There we are. There you go. Sorry, guys. Sorry. Can you hear me now? <laughs> oh, yes. And I have a phone to sell you. Okay. So, you heard Barbara's question? Yeah, what I said earlier was I, I think you realized there would be mass resignations of even some of his most loyal people, and he would be ruling in a White House talking to himself virtually. And that would have been based on, I believe, you know, concurring with your assessment on what happened with the Department of Justice just a few yes. days before. Yeah, the threat of mass resignations. Can I respond to that? Hang on, Barbara. Let's have Rick weigh in. Okay. He's an idiot. <laughs> well, that covers <laughs> a lot. Thank you. Thank you for your... What was it that some pundit the other night said, you know, by the grace of God, if he had not been an incompetent fascist, you know, this would be very different. But, I mean, that's basically the assessment, Rick, right? Well, well, I think there's a simple answer to the question. Okay. I think the simple uh, answer to the question. Hang on, yeah. hang on, Barbara, I'll, hang on. I'll, I'll, I'll stick with idiot. All right, there we go. Okay. I won't elaborate further. <laughs> Barbara. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, um, I think there's a simpler answer to the question, and that's one of the reasons if I were in the Senate, I would vote to convict. Uh, even with the information we have so far. And that is, the simple answer to the question is, he didn't want to stop it. It was, in fact, his goal. And we know that, who was it, uh, Trump, uh, who was it, was it uh, Gozar or whatever his name is? Um, oh, Paul, one of, Paul one of his, who, was a, who was a representative from Arizona. Right. And he called, he meant to call into one uh, member of Congress and accidentally, allegedly called into another one and uh, it was his and Trump's plan to, um, to expand the number of states uh, that they were going to contest uh, up to 10 states in order to buy time. The whole thing was to buy time. And Trump didn't care what happened while they were buying time. 
his, his goal was to interfere with the process of uh, certifying those electoral college votes. Can I ask? Joseph, you can ask anything. It's a conversation. I I have a question. So so let's take you to the Senate trial. Whatever evidence has been presented has been presented. Let's assume that evidence suggests pretty strongly that Donald Trump's a really evil guy who deserves whatever we can throw at him. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. How do we establish that? I'll tell you how. If we've no, got... I just said let's take it for granted. I'm, I want to get to the point of voting. Yeah, but you're, now you're you're not looking at the evidence as opposed to the conclusion. You know, that's I, what I want to do. That's exactly what I want to do to make my point. And I will tell you what the evidence will be. Right. Go ahead. I, so there's strong evidence that this is a nefarious actor, and you're a Democratic senator, and now you have a moment to vote. You can either vote to convict Donald Trump and then vote to keep him from running for office again, in which case the Republican Party is going to have to find another candidate in 2024 and other uh, and take Trump out of the 2022 elections. Or you can vote. We got Hawley. We got Cruz. There's a whole bunch of guys waiting in the wings. Why do you think Cruz and Hawley wanted to make my point? No, I I got it. Go ahead. My point is. If he's not convicted, he destroys the Republican Party. If he is convicted, the Republican Party gets rid of a poison and, and regroups. And you're a Democrat. Do you want to vote for a stronger Republican Party or a crippled, ineffective, no chance in hell Republican Party for 2024? Which would you vote for? It's a political process in the Senate. So you're saying, if I can, yes. you know, if I can jump to the end of this Hitchcock, you know, movie, <clears throat> you're saying that when it's the not vote, as complicated as a Hitchcock movie. It's when the obvious. well, wait a minute. Wait till you hear what I'm going to say. In in two or three weeks, when we when we have the trial and the final vote, you're saying that led by Mitch McConnell, Republicans will vote to convict him. And the Democrats will not. I'm saying that's what makes political sense. Okay, me. this is a very interesting member. Science is nothing if it's not prediction. So Dr. Bookman is predicting that there will be an exact inversion that McConnell will lead the charge to convict him. And, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, um, uh, Schumer. Schumer. Schumer will lead Schumer. the charge not to. Here's what I think will actually happen, because it's a little more complicated than that. I think you want to get close to conviction, but not have it happen, because these individual senators have their own campaigns in their own states to get reelected. I've made this point many times. Congress acts to get reelected. That explains everything. <laughs> do whatever they need to do to get reelected. But I'm saying from a 10,000-foot point, point of view, the Democratic Party does not want Trump convicted in a Senate trial. Except it's there's, one, to have there's one little fly, to... there's one little fly in your ointment. All right. If the if the Democrats voted not to convict and McConnell led the Republicans to convict, to, and he's basically hinted at this already. Oh. Remember a few days ago he made a speech on the floor yeah. and everybody's been trying to read the tea leaves and it's like <clears throat> McConnell has split from Trump, etc. If the Democrats voted not to convict, they would be fried by their yes, absolutely theater. 
McConnell's not going to lead that fight unless he thought he could win it. So it's all kabuki theater. It's all about the image of it. But let me ask you all a question. How come newly elected President Joe Biden isn't calling for Trump to be convicted? Because he knows it will hurt his political party. Absolutely. In the end, they want to come close but not convict. Maybe two or three votes shy of conviction. That's the perfect scenario for both sides. You keep Trump as a poison inside the Republican Party, and everybody says uh, on the Democratic side, we gave it the best we could. But okay. Really? Very That's clear. They <clears throat> very clear, precise, outlined prediction. All right. So we'll have you back after the trial, and we'll see where you are. Rick, got any Only thoughts? if my prediction comes true, will I be back? <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. Rick? You know, I, I'm going to get uh, off the phone. Yeah, Barbara, Barbara, like Barbara, to... Barbara, 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 hang on. Rick. Where Barbara go? Um, I don't think Joseph's scenario is implausible. I'll wait and see what would happen. I mean, I think I think the chances of him not being convicted are probably slightly greater than him being convicted for that and other reasons. And one is just the the inability generally of Congress to follow through on anything. So you know it's. Don't believe what people say. Believe what they do. I'll believe it when I see it. I think what he describes is something very close to conviction, something humiliating but not fatal would be it. On the other hand, remember who it is that we're talking about here. You're talking about Donald Trump. Do you think that that is going to stop him from going ahead and squandering billions of dollars to form a political party? No, it won't. There's nothing to stop him from doing that. And he can go on then subsequently. If nothing else, he has challenged presumptions and paradigms, and he can simply challenge that I don't accept the fact that I can be banned from running from public office and that people cannot vote for me, and I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Then see yeah, and I actually agree with that. I think he's going to continue yeah. to raise money, whether that money goes into an, an actual political party that does political things. That's a far okay. different question. Barbara, but Donald Trump will raise money wherever yeah. he can raise money, however he can raise it. Go ahead, yeah, Barbara. Yeah, uh, yeah thank you. Um, I would just like to say that if I were uh, Senator Schumer, uh, and it's my understanding, I could be wrong about this, but it's my understanding that the majority party, which is technically now the Democrats in the Senate, uh, that they set the ground rules. They, de- they determine whether there's going to be evidence. They determine the timing, et cetera. They, they try to negotiate with McConnell, but basically uh, they have the, uh, the upper hand. Uh, if I were Schumer, I would make it a secret vote. And if it were a secret vote, I'll bet that, that man would be – there would be very few votes, in my opinion, uh, to keep him, uh, you know, not to convict. I think that the vast majority the of the votes would be – The only secret votes is that you want to hide something. Well, but would that politically fly? Have I, don't think secret that... I have a secret vote every time I go in the voting booth. But you're not a publicly elected representative of the people. Yes. Nevertheless, that is what I would do if I were Chuck Schumer. And I would imagine that would raise as much ruckus from not only Republicans, but a lot of Democrats. Because the whole idea is transparency. Oh, no, no, no. It would be a firestorm. I don't, I don't understand that because Chuck Schumer wants to maximize the number of Democrats who get elected in the future. And I'm not clear that um, 
that impeaching Trump does that, convicting Trump in the Senate does that. I think it, I mean, that's, that's the political decision each senator will make, what's in the best interests of, A, my getting reelected, and then B, my party growing. Hmm. Right? Well, everyone, you see how difficult this is? <laughs> in other words, it's a crapshoot. We have no real data to project any high probability outcome because there's too many players with too many interests that are in conflict, and it almost is a crapshoot. Mm, I think it's a little more predictable than that. But to go to Rick's point from earlier, the Senate's not a jury. There are political pressures at play. If we had a randomly selected uh, group of jurors from the population at large, Mm -hmm. that trial would look a lot different than if what we do have is these senators who are calculating how this is going to help or hurt their reelection chances and how this is going to help or hurt their party. And Schumer and McConnell are going to do whatever they can to rally the troops around what they think is going to give them more power in the future and more of their partisans elected. I would just like to add that it was actually floated in the first impeachment trial, the possibility of having a secret vote, although it didn't happen. And I would like to point out that the Constitution and the tradition of the trials for impeachment, literally it states that the Senate sits as a jury. And jury votes are not public. The individual votes of jurors are not public in a grand jury or a petty jury. So, um, yeah, only, you know, whether it's a good idea or not is another question. But yeah, I think the, that it's, yeah. The whole grand jury thing, it all depends on the juror. They're only secret in terms of other people. Jurors themselves can go out and talk about anything they did, including who they voted for or against. Yes, and, and you well, are so could any member of the Senate, even if it were a secret vote uh, in the trial in the Senate, they could still go out and say how they voted. Of course, they could lie, but they could say how they voted to their constituents. They, so they, you have to have you have to have eighty-one senators agree to that, because Article One says that under the Journal Clause, any twenty senators can demand a written recording of the yeas and nays on any vote. I don't, think I don't believe get... that applies to the jury, to a jury trial, which is explicit what the trial of the impeachment is. It is a jury trial. They are sitting as jurors. And by the way, they take it in, they take a completely different oath. They completely take a separate oath as jurors. Yeah, but read Article 1 of the United States Constitution Journal Clause. And so your point may be valid, in which case then it goes to the courts. We can argue all this on the courts, and what a waste of time. But um, I think you need 81 well, 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 well. Why is it, well, Joseph, why is it a waste of time? You know, there's business to be done in this country that involves government. Yeah, but you're imagining and, we can't do two things at once. They're talking about well, the trial in the morning, congressional actions, you know, votes, the, the legislation uh, in the afternoon. And then they're talking about evening sessions for, I think, the um, the appointment, you know, the, the, the completion of – Biden's cabinet, or maybe I've got the two reversed. The point is, they can multiplex. They don't have to do only one thing. If you ignore that people are going to want to take things to the Supreme Court to fight over things of whether you can have a secret ballot or not, for example. 
But there is there is the Article One of the Constitution that says twenty senators can demand a written record of yeas and nays on any vote. Um, and yes, they sit as a jury, but it is a political environment, not a criminal one. Hmm. If anybody else wants to join the conversation, when we come back uh, on the other side of the break, which is like 10 minutes away, I've got a very intriguing question. I think uh, I'm going to finally be able to get to ask uh, uh, my panelists. If you want to join this, 917-889-8802. 917-889-02. So let me get back to the idea of evidence, Okay. Because, again, we're, we're talking about what's going to happen in the future. We've got two sets of futures. We have Trump's future, which, as I think you have established very clearly, is the future of the Republican Party. And then we've got you know, the Biden administration's future and their agenda items, their legislation, the things they want to accomplish. They need to do a lot in the next two years because there's an election coming up for the House and the Senate again in 2022. So they got to put some, you know, points on the board. Um, that whole dichotomy to me is fascinating. And historically, we haven't seen something like this, Rick, uh, maybe since, what, the Whigs went away? Well, by something like this, what exactly do you mean by the number of... of... The, the events which can form the genesis of a whole new political infrastructure, a party in the United States? Well, we'll have to wait and see whether that happens. I, I don't I don't see that this is necessarily the, the beginning of a new political party. I mean... Yeah, but dependent on what happens to Trump. That's what I'm well, saying. I mean, to go back to this, why, why are we so obsessed with Donald Trump? Because he, he got 74,000 votes and... Most of his voters think that his election was stolen. Then then they're going to think that anyway. Is there anything that you or I or anybody else is going to say that's going to convince them that that wasn't the case? I mean, I could stand or you could stand. Anybody else could tell them and talk to them that they're blue in the face and they would never grasp it. I've talked to people today. I've talked to people who still absolutely believe that. I'm not going to waste my time trying to dissuade them from it because that's what it is that, that they're convinced of. You know, but it comes back. I would agree with Joseph that even if, you know, Congress and the Senate has time to engage in a, you know, what is essentially a political show trial for one reason or other, deserved or not, they have better things to do. You can't convince me that there isn't something else that the elected representatives of the United States could do in the situation we're in now which is rather impressive in a number of ways, that they couldn't better spend their time than worrying about trying to ban Donald Trump from any future political office. And I want to add, I amen to that. And then you're saying there's 74 million voters who are loyalists to Trump. That's not true. No. Most most voters vote against the other evil. They were anti-Biden voters or anti-Democrat voters. I live in Utah. These people in Utah, largely dominated by you know, people who are oriented around their religion here, they voted for Trump with their noses held. 
they didn't vote for Trump. They're not going to defend Trump now that he's gone. They want to find a a, a moral Republican, uh, perhaps. They want nothing to do with this man now, in, in my perspective of what's going on here. They just voted against the Democrats because, you know, there's this one side's evil, the other side's good. Polarization of America, uh, that's that's destructive. So I don't think you have 74 million people who are loyalists to Trump that feel like he lost the election and was stolen. You got some probably relatively minor percentage of those, mm-hmm. even if you want to call it half. Um, and okay. that's fading okay. with time. The momentum around that, the, the failure of January 6th and the QAnon prophecies to come true, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're beginning to lose a little bit of their momentum uh, is what I see. Okay. We have a caller. Area code 217, get ready. You're about to be on the air. Hey, what's going on, guys? Uh, Name, please. Rich. Okay, Rich, what do you got? Okay, another thing that you guys should bring up, uh, Chief Justice Roberts has came out and said that he's not going to partake in the trial, and the only person qualified to do the impeachment trial as Chief, Chief Justice Roberts because you cannot have an inferior uh, you know, executive member partake in the trial. That's why they were arguing, well, then the vice president, because it's her chamber, should be the one that takes the trial. But it, that's an inferior position. Their argument is, well, Trump's a private citizen, so it's not an inferior position. That's the only way the vice president could reside over it. If you're trying to impeach the president, the only person that could do it would be Chief Justice Roberts. And he basically let people know that he's not going to do it because the only person that he can sit on a trial for is the president of the United States, and that's Joe Biden. So that's okay, just something I, I figured you guys should. So I have a couple, uh, Rich, I have a couple of questions. One is, what is your source of information that the Chief Justice has said he will not preside over the trial? Rand Paul said it uh, yesterday. Rand Paul, uh, that's your source? Okay. Yes. All right. Okay. <clears throat> I'd I like said, to hear uh, it from... Go ahead. Say that again. I'd like to hear it from the Chief Justice. <laughs> Yeah, I understand. Did you all I don't go away? Going to come out, but no, we're all here. So, so basically, if if Chief Justice Roberts doesn't preside over it, there is no one qualified to preside over it because you cannot have an inferior executive, and anybody other than Chief Justice Roberts would be an inferior executive. Okay, let's well, let, uh, let, let, let's throw this to Rick. Rick is is what what Rich is saying. Anywhere within the realm of possibility, can the Chief Justice not, in a constitutional process, commit to participate if he has to participate? I don't know. You'd have to ask the Chief Justice that. Hmm. If there's an issue, I mean, it is a little weird to me that you are now carrying out an impeachment trial of someone who is no longer the president. So. I mean, God, you have to get lawyers into that somewhere along the line. Uh, I think it, like, this this whole situation just looks hopelessly muddy to me. I mean, 
legally, it looks like like a huge can of worms. And and I think it's the thing that Joseph brought. I mean, my biggest problem with this is that I don't know where you get any resolution out of it. I mean, I'm not I'm not sure that an impeachment would ultimately decide anything, and and or even anything that's worth is being decided at this point. There's you know there's a time to move on. And uh, I think we've long since passed that. Hmm. I do well, not. Go ahead. Barbara, yeah, go I ahead. do not think we've moved past it. Not at all. And, um, you know, I think we have the uh, precedent of the general belt snap uh, uh, trial, uh, impeachment and trial after he left office. Or actually, I don't know if it was impeached before he left office. But anyway, he he was uh, the trial was after no, he, he left he, office. He, 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 he was a federal official, and I believe I know. in terms of Rick asked, was he president? And I think Rick, you're implying that the rules for impeaching well, the, presidents the, are. We're different. talking about there are special rules for impeaching and Excuse me, for impeaching a president, and if we're talking about that, then we have to stick to that. Bringing in the impeachment of other federal officials isn't really relevant to that. That's not what I've been. The point I was going to make is it's worth looking into. uh, Did the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court preside over Belknap's trial? I don't know. I don't either. It's a good thing to ask. Yeah. Very good thing to ask. I'm just reading Princeton University political scientist said the issue is unsettled, completely without precedent, non-specific in existing Senate rules and precedents. This is why okay. we're wasting time. This is not a simple thing that will just get done in a day, perhaps. Why is Donald Trump still holding us all hostage? Because yeah. he's committed yeah. high crimes and misdemeanors. If you don't censor a president, yeah, the next guy. The voters just censored him. He's gone. That's the ultimate judge. And like Frankenstein. And remember, to be fair, he you are alleging that he committed high crimes. In well, that's case. what the trial is he for. He didn't commit them. He didn't commit them until he has been convicted in a court that's of law. That's what the trial is for, yes. Well, you know, excuse me. I'd just like to jump in and remind real, people. Real if you say that the voters, just a minute. If you say that the voters put him in and it was the voters' call, it was Trump who was saying that the, the whole thing was a fraud. You can't have it both ways. Time, Rich. Hey, guys. He's gone. Guys, we are coming up to a break here. One half hour to go. I, I guarantee you we're going to be hearing from uh, uh, Georgia Lambert because I have an exquisite question to ask Rick when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. 
support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone last half hour of the other side of midnight for this saturday sunday edition here in the land of champ but it is sunday morning and if you want to call in and have something to contribute or a question uh, 917-889-8802 is your number 917-889-8802 and uh, we've got plenty of time i'm going to be going right now to rick spence to ask a very intriguing question, at least intriguing to me, and I think his answer is going to be equally intriguing, and that will be your cue, Georgia. This is your question, okay? So, Rick, here's the question. All right. We talked about George Washington's dream in our private discussions a couple of days ago. When I saw all this going down, that was the first thing I thought of, and so what you need to do excuse me, is to lay out what George Washington's dream was, ostensibly, and then what the reality is around it, and that will be the opening for Georgia to kind of look at this in a different way. So what you're talking about is something that is usually, I think, called, it's either George Washington's vision, George Washington's dream, and it is... um, first appeared in, uh, I have my notes here somewhere, first appeared in 1861 at the beginning of the Civil War. So this is basically what it is, all right? Uh, It appeared in in a newspaper, and it purported to be the 19th, a recollection of a overheard conversation between George Washington and one of his other officers in Valley Forge in 1777 in the darkest days of the American Revolution. And this was overheard by a soldier who in 1859 was 99 years old and was telling this story. And it's, you know, it's pretty much if you've seen Christmas Carol, you you pretty much get the uh, gist of what was happening. He was visited three times by a spirit that came to him in a dream or a vision and said the Republic is going to go through three great challenges and there were all kinds of whirling dark clouds and the initial one came across the Atlantic and threatened the country and receded 
you know, pretty clear reference to the revolution the country was in or the War of 1812 to come. Uh, then the second one was a, a, a dark cloud that was arising from Africa and from the south and sweeping over the country. The Civil War had just started. So, And then the third one was going to be an even larger cloud that was going to come from every direction from, I think it specifically mentions Europe and Asia and Africa. And the dark cloud would again descend upon the republic and again it would be delivered and these would be the three great trials it was basically saying you know keep at it george you will succeed and the country will settle trials so this story was appeared to no great uh reception in 1861 it was republished in a union veterans newspaper called the national tribune in 1880 and got a lot of you know got a lot of airplay you might say and then it was republished again in stars and stripes in 1950 by which time what was originally a work of fiction was treated as if it was recounting an actual historical event so here's the reality of it. And there are some sources that I think that Kinthea posted that you can go and read about this in greater detail. Uh, it was a work of fiction, uh, basically penned by a fellow who made a career out of penning works of political fiction. Um, the soldier who supposedly overheard, I think Anthony Stevens, is that what his name is? Anthony was uh, he was indeed a, uh, a there was a soldier by that name in the Continental Army, but uh, at the time when this supposedly occurred, he was not in Valley Forge. He was with Benedict Arnold up in Vermont, so he wasn't in the place where he was supposed to have been, and he couldn't have given any kind of account of this dream in 1859 because he died 20 years earlier. Oops. But it's one of those things. <laughs> That, that, that became, you know, it was a good story. You know, it was a good story, and it sort of hit home. And, and, and this is one of these things where, as I mentioned before, you know, in, in, in history, if it's a difference between the truth and a good story, the good story will always <laughs> win out. So it was a good story that was penned and later got some mileage out of it, and people began to think it was real, and it isn't. And that's it. Or... Was it real but apprehended by a creative artist who penned it as fiction when, in fact, <clears throat> it was some kind of a vision of his own that for good marketing purposes, you know, he did what he did? In other words, this goes back to Georgia. If all of this stuff, if all of this Michigas, this turbulence, this cleaving of the society – almost in equal halves is real. And of course we're living through it. Is it possible that coming events can in fact send waves back through time and someone picked up something about, you know, what's going on now? Except that that doesn't have anything to do with what's going on. Now. Did we, it did describes we, did attacks we, from overseas. Did we lose Georgia? No, no, oh, there I'm you are. Here. There you are. Okay. <laughs> Well, certainly things can ripple, you know, from the future backwards. However, um, I'm looking at all of this stuff from a little bit of a different place. You know, all of the conversations so far this evening, which has been fascinating, by the way, kudos to everybody. Um, it's, it's, it's talking about specific things that are happening now, uh, various views on the court politics of everything. I'm kind of looking at it not so much as 
an intellectual um, view of what's going on, but of how it affects the consciousness. You know, when the the whole thing with the Capitol building happened, I, of course, uh, thought of my father. Um, many of your listeners know that my family's been military since time out of mind. <laughs> my My parents and grandparents were all Pearl Harbor survivors of the morning. And my father was one of the original founders of NATO. And when I saw what was going on at the Capitol, I I was so glad that he was no longer around because his heart would have been broken to see that sacred space violated like that um, by whomever, for whatever. And... You know, you were you were talking earlier uh, in the conversation about, um, you know, what would have happened uh, if Trump had tried to, um, you know, sign the Sedition Act and, and establish martial law. And from what I know about growing up in the military, I know that there is enough honor in the military that um, there allegiance would have been to the Constitution. So what I'm seeing is that all of this stuff that's going on on the surface, all of these patterns that are coming up that show us our our darker sides in so many different ways, it's also bringing out and stimulating uh, the human heart at a higher level. And I think that all of this is a tremendous opportunity to reevaluate and reformulate what it is that we champion. Uh, Because this is a time where we can evoke champions. You know, you were talking earlier about the, um, the power being thrown to the executive branch over the legislative branch. I mean, it's on one level, it's really simple. You know, people would much rather be led than think. And this is a real problem. However, when the heart is involved, not just the emotions, but the the spiritual heart, then there's there's a a nobleness and a goodness that seems to rise up from depths that we never knew that we had. And I think this is a a time and an opportunity for that to happen. Hmm. Where does the confusion and fog and the extraordinary bifurcation of of the culture come in because people on both sides of this divide, people who are anti-Trump and people who are pro-Trump, they're both thinking of themselves as the good guys. And the percentage of bad apples in the Trump crowd is really very small. The problem is the mindset of those people that think Donald basically was shafted and he should still be president because he really won. They're believing a set of pyramiding lies that it's impossible to address intellectually. I have tried. It's pointless. I know. know. It does not work. And these are people who are deep. I respect them. I've known some of them for decades. They are not idiots. They're not, you know, children. They're mature And they've been caught up in this vortex with millions of other people in believing a lie. And 
I don't know how to reach them because the normal rational by step by step to show that Trump did not win, that he, he wasn't stolen. Eight million more people voted for for Biden than for Trump. Uh, the Electoral College is 306 to whatever the other number is. That I mean, there were 60 court cases. Every one of them was thrown out. If we have a system that we believe in, if you take something to court, we mentioned court many times tonight. If you take a process to court and it loses 60 tetrahedral times, maybe that's a clue that your side doesn't have the evidence because no case on the merits has been allowed to proceed. Now, the other side is saying, well, there's this vast mega globalist conspiracy. And then the conversation just dissipates. You, you cannot confront reality of, a, of, of people's belief systems when they firmly in the right believe they are right. So what's the answer? Can I add something very quick? Hang on. Let me, let me have George answer and then we'll, we'll have you come back. Go ahead. It, it goes back to what we've discussed on other shows, that there are conflicting views of reality for, for certain. Um, the metaphysical reasons about how, you know, the mechanics of how this can come about is too complicated to get into in the short time that Oh, come, on, come on, come on, come on. We got 15 it, minutes. It, it come would, on. It, come would, on. It, would take, it would take longer than 15 minutes. But it goes back to I'm sure everybody has had the experience trying to talk to someone that's angry. You know, the phrase, it's like talking to a brick wall. Mm-hmm. There's actually some reality to that because uh, in, in the metaphysical model, we are multi-level beings and there are layers different layers of matter, physical matter, um, the matter of the etheric or electrical grid of the earth. There's the matter of humanity's collective emotions and the matter of humanity's collective mind. And when a person's emotions, lower emotions are stirred up, it's like the envelope of matter, the emotional envelope of matter around them thickens, and logic cannot get through. It's only when the person calms down that that can happen. As long as we've got the situation that we have now with this polarization that we have, um, nobody's going to believe or listen to anybody else, and that's the problem. One of my students put this really beautifully. We have to make the leap from this us and them consciousness to instead of us against them, it needs to be us against harm. Harm, no matter who it comes from or how it comes, rather than the them. And as long as we are in the us and them uh, mindset, Nobody is going to listen to anybody else. And what's the answer? Again, the answer is to lift above the us against them and champion us against harm on any level from any source by any person. Mm -hmm. Richard? Yeah, sure, Joe. I love that. 
because the core of libertarian philosophy is the non-aggression principle. Us against harm is brilliant. But everything I've heard here in a bit, and I think this might be helpful. You, you, when I first tried to get this point in, you were saying there's this side and there's the other side. And this side thinks they're good and the other side's bad. And the other side thinks they're good and the other side's bad. And we just heard it was us versus them. But let me point to the reality. That's, that's not the reality of our political landscape. Right? There's a Democratic Party, there's a Republican Party, and there's a bulk of people who don't vote. There's at least three sides here, mm-hmm. uh, and there's, there, there's more. So when, when you look at America, it's not like there's the people who feel like Trump, uh, Trump got robbed, and there's the people who feel like Trump didn't get robbed. The big battle. But no, there's a third group, which is, pro- I believe, the larger group out of the three. It's just not participating in the battle at all. They don't care. I don't think it's just they therefore don't they it's don't count. No, it's not. If you it's opt out of the system, if you opt out of the system, you can't complain. You know what? If you refuse it's to scared. fight a war, if you refuse to fight the war, you didn't opt out. You chose peace. That's different. It, it, I don't it, think it is. Go ahead, you Rick. can argue that the political system is – you can argue it's illegitimate. You can argue it's corrupt. You can argue it's non-representative. And you can simply say, I'm not going to participate in it. That's what Gandhi did. Yeah, but I don't think that most, most people, people – I don't, don't think – I, I, again, reflecting back on the earlier conversations tonight, I don't think the people who are not voting are voting or not voting on principle – they're just not voting because they don't think it makes any damn difference, and their lives are too complex and besieging right. them. And now, instead of us versus them and one side against the other side, you've distinguished now at least four. There's Republicans, there's Democrats, there's people who don't vote because they choose not to fight, and then there's the people who've opted out. Now we have a, a little different landscape where there's at least four when, when I was describing the us against them consciousness, it wasn't just – uh, politically, us against them in terms of ethnicity, yes. uh, gender, religion, uh, nationality, everything. It's it's like that that poem by Rudyard Kipling about them and us. You know, everybody else is them, and we're us. Whatever that us happens to be, and this is this is you know something that we have to get beyond, and uh, and realize that. You know, at our at the core of our being, we are one humanity, and um, it's going to be a while before we begin to act like it. But anytime we have these big crises, we get the opportunity to take one step forward toward that. I love that because it shows us who we are, and we are one humanity on the planet. We're fighting over Democrats and Republicans. We got a, a, a planet with 160 some odd nations. We could all go fight over that. And I'd extend it even further. We're not just one humanity. There's one with all sentient life yes, in the cosmos. Absolutely. absolutely. And that's what we get to be with and not against. And, and anything that harms that. Uh, that's that's what needs to be adjusted. And, and yeah, I choose not to harm that. And some voters, some non-voters, say I choose not to harm that. Voting, you know, voting at all is, is somehow initiating a, a, a sense of harm. There's at least some folks out there, Richard, 
Uh, don't dismiss them along with the people who've just opted out and condemn them all in one lump. Mm-hmm. But how can not participating be a participation? Don't you remember from the 60s? What if they gave a war and nobody came? Yeah, but that's, you know, the Buffalo Springfield, the song. Yeah, I know all that. The practical matter is if you're not in the system, you're in a 3D world, your boat, your, your, your drive, your consciousness, your, your, your desire to achieve an effect will achieve the effect of zero. It may get you to heaven. I'm using that metaphorically. But it doesn't affect the body politic. And see, well, the thing that struck me for the last several years as I've been watching this descending spiral, this is such a morality play because we're not talking about policy. We're not talking about normal politics. We're talking about good and evil. People having to decide, is it good or evil to rip children away from their families forever and put them in cages because you, quote, want to deter their relatives from coming and storming the border. That was, a, that was an ethical, moral set of decisions. And one of the things that I'm intrigued about the Biden administration is one of the first things he's proposing is a commission to literally go and find every one of those separated children and parents and get them back together, which to me is the only moral thing to do, which makes the Biden political act a moral act as well. Yes, no, maybe. I mean, that's that's a that's that's a, a distinction that you've drawn that is emotional and resonates with me. But I don't think the cages were only under Trump. And we bomb a million dollar bomb is dropped every ninety minutes. It's been going on for a decade. Republicans and Democrats both. I think what we call Joseph Joseph. Planet. I think we call this whataboutism. Because, yes, there's all all kinds of bizarre things that need to be fixed. Why don't we focus on the first thing that the Biden people are saying they want to fix? All right. Declare declare the Biden administration is good and the other side is evil. I don't think that gets you anywhere. That doesn't get you to I choose no harm. Moral pronouncements are not harm. They separate us from chaos. That's why we have laws. That's why we have churches. That's why we have rules, why we have what are called morals, because there are things that humans do not do to each other because they're immoral. Ripping okay, so children. You're condemning, you're condemning everybody who didn't vote for No, Trump. I'm not saying that at all. Not at all. I'm oh, talking well, then about, explain to me I'm, how you're I'm, not I'm talking about the, the, uh, the Trump administration and the fact that to correct that, the Biden administration is coming in with a practical – needs money fix, which is to literally send the best law enforcement, CIA, et cetera, people into Central America to find these parents and reconnect those families. I don't think okay, that's an then, immoral act. Go ahead. That, I mean, once that's done, then it will be – we can all feel good about that. But, uh, you know, I, I mean – Nobody particularly asked me, but here's my my take on this. (laughs) Human beings are cooperative and kind and helpful until they're not. How did I know you were going to say that? That's what basically the study of history teaches me is that human beings are helpful until they're not. They're cooperative until they're not. They're sane until they're not. And you can never exactly tell when that's going to change. Look at your general relationships with people that you come across and you encounter that your entire life. 
the person who seems to be reasonable on everything. You know, it's, it's a bit like Winston Churchill, who had something to say about everything, said is that everybody's a little mad about something. Okay, mm-hmm. you know someone long enough, you, get a, you you can find the thing that they're just sort of crazy about, the thing then where rationality seems to take a backseat to whatever their belief system is at that point. And that's, you know, I mean, I, I hate to sort of bring this up, but for all of the, you know, love and good wishes and, you know, good vibrations we all want to have, the basic reality is that human beings have been joyously slaughtering each other for the last 10,000 years at least. And I see no reason that we're ever going to stop. That's why we have laws, which is basically to protect us from other people, okay? Mm-hmm. Why we empower governments, which are essentially, in many ways, killing machines in order, you know, you, you, <laughs> you, you have government, you create men with guns to basically protect you from worse men with guns. Okay. That's essentially what politics in many ways boils down to. That's well, who, we who was it who said that war by, is, is merely an extension of politics by any other name? Ah, okay. Well, I believe and hope we all agree that it's good to choose the side that chooses to do no harm. And let's or to repair harm. It's not just about not doing something; it's about actively doing something, and the doing has to be positive. You know, let me throw something in here, Richard. It's and I agree. It's not just not doing harm. It's standing against harm as well. Yes. Hang on, Joe. In, in, in the spiritual path, there are, there are many different avenues of approach. And uh, along with the ascetic, there is the path of the spiritual warrior who the night before being knighted stands vigil dedicating his arms in service to those without defense. So the idea of, of being against harm is not just refraining from doing harm. It's also defending those without defense and keeping them from harm, giving them a safe space to grow and to thrive. And, um, and you know, that's, that's also part of the choice. And, and the choices that we have in these times of crisis is to really define what it is we believe in, what it is we want to champion, mm-hmm. and what it is we want to stand for. Let me ask, uh, first of all, Joe, you had a point. Yeah, because we're talking about voting, and there's lots of ways to do things that proactively change the world for the better. But it feels to me like we're coming down to this one party's good, one party's evil, and if you don't vote, you're somehow part of the problem. When the reality is both parties are dropping bombs, both parties are increasing debt like crazy, and maybe one party's getting some kids out of cages. And the only way to solve that is by voting. No. No? But we're at the end of the show. Well, we'll we'll, 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 we'll pick this up. (laughs) If if you don't vote... There's a lot more to our society than our government. A lot. Okay. Well, I'll be, go Rick, ahead, Rick. Can I? Yeah. Can Rick. I throw this out? Go for it. Close if time. voting all things, then the United the United States was not created by voting. Okay. America did not vote its way into existence. And here, this has nothing to do with Trump. I sense insurrection and insurrectionists have gotten kind of a bad rap this evening. <laughs> I have to say something in favor. This 
country was founded on insurrection. It was founded by people who committed treason and knew they were committing treason and which in, in founded the republic in which we live and the constitution. All of our founding fathers were insurrectionists. And on that note, a revolution against the king unless you were an insurrectionist. So not necessarily a bad thing. And on that note, stay tuned. We're going to continue this conversation. Tomorrow night we're going to do something a little bit similar but different. We're going to talk about Rome in America. I mean, the United States has been compared to Rome. Well, tomorrow night you're going to hear evidence that, in fact, that may not be totally inaccurate. Stay tuned, everyone. And remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. 